This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is the one and only Tony Visconti, record producer extraordinaire. So, Tony, how do you produce a record? Well, I'm the guy in charge of everything. I found that out very early on. If uh, anything goes wrong, I'm to blame. So I have to do a lot of planning before the group and myself actually sets foot in the studio, which would require pre-production, which means you visit the band in their uh, favorite space and you rehearse the songs and learn the songs. And uh, then when I get into the studio, I have to be both a technician and a creative director. I think I qualify for the latter because I'm, uh, I studied music since I was like 15 years old and I play several instruments. I write orchestrations and I understand how harmony and theory works. And I also understand rock and roll people too, because I'm one myself, I guess. Okay. So generally speaking, do people find you or are you looking for opportunities? Uh, it comes from all different directions. I have a really good manager who f- who finds people for me, and people contact him. But just recently, I was in Hamburg, Germany, w- for the uh, Reeperbahn Festival. It's like South by Southwest over there. And I saw a group called uh, Daisy the Great, two front uh, female singers. And I thought they were fantastic. They played on the Reeperbahn. And uh, I I found that they were from New York. They live in Brooklyn. So just yesterday, I made my first record with them. So that was a direct face-to-face contact with a a group. Okay. The world is totally different from when you began your career. So if you're dealing with these two women, A, do they have a record company? You know, they, they have an indie label, which could mean anything. Uh, it, it's you know how i don't know what 
uh, capital that label has or anything, but I'm, I'm always attracted to the music. It's that's where my heart is. I love these girls. The music really got to me when I was in Hamburg and, um, we had a writing session that started two days ago. The, the, the one of the uh, girls came in with her guitar and just played about three chords. And within an hour, we had the structure of a song, the melodic and chord structure of, of a song. And then we chipped away at it for the past two days. So now I've actually recorded an entire song with them. It, it's just amazing how it works. So in this uh, today's world, you can record the equipment just to get basics down is much cheaper, i.e. digital computer, but it still requires a certain amount of money. So in the old days, you might have hundreds of thousands of dollars to make a record, whereas today, frequently, even with acts that are well-known, the budget's constricted relatively low. So an act like this, how, how much is the budget and how do you make it work? I would say if I was going to make an album with them, we have some nice studios in uh, Brooklyn and Manhattan where I live, uh, where you, you can get them for about $500 a day. And I would only need, say, two weeks in a proper studio like that just to record the drums. In my little place I've got here, I'm, I'm sitting in uh, 20th Street in Manhattan, I could record vocals, guitars, saxophones, uh, bass guitars, but not drums. It's, it's just, just no uh, space that big here. So it really, I make, I make these albums more economical by having my own facility. So what do we say, like 20 grand at yeah. the minimum? I would say that, yeah. Okay. So, you know, you talk about getting drums right, and certainly in the pre-internet era, that was a big thing in the big studio. could certainly take days just to get the sound right. Many people today listen via earbuds. The, the goal in the 70s was to have the biggest stereo you could possibly have to get closer to the music. And yeah. now it's kind of the opposite. So how do you feel about this making records? Well, so, you know, I've got the Apple uh, earbud, earpods and they sound really great. They have uh, the high-end the high ones. Uh, you could hear a lot of low end on it. You could hear the width of a big stereo production, but you know, a lot of kids could only afford like cheap and nasty things with wires on them still, you know, they're not, they're not Bluetooth. So I have to listen to what I do on everything. I've got these big expensive speakers in my studio. I've got smaller ones at home and I've got the ear, the Apple buds and somewhere you can make a mix that's going to sound great on everything in fact that's the hallmark of a good mix it should sound great on everything it might not sound the same but it has to sound great what are the speakers you listen to what are the brand names i have uh, a, a a pair of genelex uh, i i don't know i think they i think they're german or swiss or something like that actually they're finnish i have upset myself there you go finnish right <laughs> And uh, I've got a pair of uh, a bigger pair of monitors from Barefoot. It's a company that I think is in uh, Washington State, and they make phenomenal, phenomenal speakers. That's what I listen to mainly. And in terms of recording equipment, in terms of a, a board, Pro Tools, how do you do it? I'm in Pro Tools almost exclusively. I have no board anymore. There's, there's no need for it because I don't record drums. But I've got uh, 
preamplifiers for, uh, and I, and I've got an amazing set of microphones. And uh, so one, two, three, four. I have about 10 preamps, which means I could record up to about, uh, one of them's got four inputs. So about 14 microphones at the same time. But there's no need for a, a board anymore. Not, not, not for my purposes. Since we're this deep, how big is your monitor and how many monitors? How big is my, oh, what I'm looking at you on? <laughs> no, no, I'm talking about when you're recording. You got your Pro Tools rig. It's on a computer, but you're watching a screen. Yeah, I'm watching a screen. And is it one screen? Is it 20 inches, 30 inches? Do you know? No, I've got two 26-inch screens, and I stack them one above the other. Really? Instead of, yeah, side by side, because it gives me more room for my speakers. They, they, you know, a lot of studios have their screens off to the right, and I th that means you spend half the session listening in your left ear. It's a ridiculous setup. So I put my my screens on top of each other. They don't take up much space. And I have my, I'm, when I'm mixing, when I'm working, I'm always in between the two speakers. Always, at all times. Okay. Now, you know, once the union era ended in the 60s, there were record producers and engineers. Everybody was independent except for a few people like a Warner Brothers. Then we hit an era where the engineers became producer. Personally, I found a lot of those people, although they had success, were not as musically evolved or trained like you. So, do you do the engineering yourself? Do you have preferred engineer? How does it work? When I record uh, drums and perhaps a live band, I do occasionally record a whole band in the studio, just like the good old days. I need an engineer. I can't. I have to concentrate on the music. I just can't twiddle the knobs during those serious moments. You know when you're trying to get the best out of a band. So then I'm a director in the studio, a big studio. I'm a director, but when I come back to my studio, I don't use an engineer. I do all my recording myself. I'm, I'm always on one microphone. You know, with a singer or maybe a, a stereo output from a keyboard. It's easily manageable to do that and to give direction at the same time. So I don't need a I don't need an engineer when I'm mixing. And I mix how they say inside the box, in the box. Explain to my audience what that means. <laughs> in the box means I do all the uh, mixing in the computer itself. It never leaves the computer. However, I do have uh, 16 analog outputs to do that if I want to. If the project wants a more analog sound which kind of has all the little bit of bits of distortion and uh, you know overblown bass, I could come through 16 channels of this thing called uh, Dangerous Audio 2 Bus. It is a, it's a real magic trick for anybody who works inside the box, which is the computer, but takes it out of the box just to get an analog flavor, and then it gets recorded back into the box again. The nice thing about digital, I mean, people say it's cold and all that, but digital is really true. What you put in comes out. It's not, it doesn't color it in any way. So that's why we are now, after we asked for this kind of magical recording all these years, now we're finding we need all these like techniques to mess it up again, to make it sound <laughs> saturated and, you know, blown out tape and all that. Okay, so the old days of the analog, you had all this outboard gear. 
So you have digital replications in the box of those sounds and effects you might want to use. Sure, I, I've got um, I've got some effects in analog gear still, um, and I next door a, a, per, a friend of mine has this uh, retro tape machine that we can I could use at any time to get that real bad repeat echo, that slapback echo. But in Pro Tools, there are a lot of virtual uh, apps that replicate the sound of a tape recorder or any kind of reverb. I've got a reverb that, that uh, emulates Hansa Studios in Germany because I did my Bowie recordings there, and I, I sent a team over there to capture the reflections, wow. take, ma make note of the wood panels, and it's called T-Verb. So for all you recording uh, enthusiasts, it's made by the company called Eventide and TV-Verb, you know. <laughs> they named it. I didn't name it, but it's called T-Verb in honor of me. And you can get that Bowie's Hero vocal sound with this uh, app easily. It's very easy to do. Okay, a little bit slower. You sent your team over there. Then you yes. made a deal with Eventide. I already, well, my team was Eventide. We worked together. I did a lot. I do a lot of things for them, and they do a lot of things for me. I've got all their new equipment, their old equipment. We're we're good friends. And I grew up ten blocks away from the the guy who owns Eventide now, Tony Aniello. We're both both Brooklyn boys. Okay, so we live in an era of vinyl fetishism. From my viewpoint, and I'm an amateur, it's one thing if it's recorded analog. It makes no sense to me to record at such a high res in Pro Tools, get it down to analog. You have all the issues that we're aware of. What is the tracking angle, the inside groove, the outside groove, all these other things. What's your take on today's vinyl mania? I'm uh, very pleased with the way vinyl sounds now because uh, we could record, we could make vinyls louder than they ever were, which was always a problem, especially with lengthy sides. Like in the prog rock days, groups used to like to make 40, even 50 minute albums, which you get, that's the law of diminishing returns. You only have so many grooves from, from the label to the uh, you know, beginning of the record. So now, because of computer technology, even the cutting lathes are working at speeds that uh, a human brain can't work at. Because uh, in the old days, when you wanted to widen the groove, you had a little wheel, and the engineer did it by hand to open up the groove for a very loud passage. And when it's quiet, he would close the groove by hand. And now the computer does this about 10 times quicker therefore optimizing the space between the beginning of a vinyl and the end of a vinyl. So this is a good thing that's happened. I, I like new vinyls. They, they sound better than ever. Let's say you cut something, what, at 192 in Pro Tools, and then it is ultimately rendered to vinyl. And let's say you're listening to the 192 version, you have it scaled it down. Are they just different listening experiences, or do you feel that one is superior? They should be the same. 192 is, has got so many bits in it that it's, it's almost a smooth, uh, curved analog sound. You know, when I, if you look at these on an oscilloscope, you could see digital is, it looks like steps in a Mario game, you know, a Nintendo game. It looks like uh, steps that you would climb. Whereas a pure analog single is a curve. It's very smooth. So, 
192 has got so many uh, bits jammed into per second that it resembles a curve very closely. So if you transfer 192 to vinyl, it'll probably be the same. But but vinyl has the one artifact that it's a medium. It's got that plastic sound that you're not very aware of all the time. But analog sounds warm because of the vinyl itself. That's one of the reasons. Vinyl has a warm uh, kind of uh, loose kind of sound to it. Uh, but if you listen to the 192, it would sound incredible. I think from... 48 kilohertz up uh, a mix sounds pretty good if you're doing all the right things if you're recording fat you know nice nice preamps and nice bass sounds and all that uh, from 48k which is i think uh dvds of 48k it sounds good it doesn't sound horrible you know who's got who's got these big like you said bob who's got these big speakers in right. their living room anymore who gives a shit really you know well, even the older people are listening on on headphones and uh, and, and ear earbuds earpods. Okay, so you know there's so many takes out there. There are some engineers who say the sound you like from vinyl is actually distortion. You're talking about the plastic itself. Can you go a little deeper there? The plastic itself adds the distortion. Uh, it's a physical process. It uh, it's it's gonna you're, you're hearing something from outside the music. It's the physical world, the groove and the vinyl. Uh, it, it's a medium. Uh, like if, if you just you know s scratched a chalk on a on a blackboard, it's a medium. You'll hear that that surface noise. That's what the word I'm looking for, which everyone really talks about when they analyze a vinyl recording. How much surface noise is there? Uh, compared to how much musical content is there. So um, that that's the problem we have with vinyl. And if you keep your sides short, you will never hear surface noise. I recommend no more than 18 minutes per side because beyond that, you will be losing a dB for every minute. That's, that's actually a ratio. That's a, a law in vinyl cutting. So if we were at your house... And it was equally uh, easy or difficult. And I say, I'm going to play it on either vinyl or play it uh, at 192. Which would you prefer? With absolutely no coloration, you would prefer the 192. With the digital surface noise, etc., cetera, it, it still sounds great. It's just slight, it will sound slightly different. And maybe only. I would maybe if you gave me a blindfold test, I couldn't tell the difference. Except I would maybe the, somebody putting the tone arm down on the record might give it away. But I, you know, a well cut vinyl that has a, a an eighteen minute maximum side and a one ninety two file, it's going to sound pretty close to each other. So, have you always been a technology geek? Oh yeah, from the good old days when I was a kid, I used to take radios apart and. Uh, uh, I had a little uh, radio once, and and it was a, like I took it out of my mom's kitchen, but I bought a ten inch speaker from uh, Lafayette Street. And, oh wow! Uh, <laughs> Canal <Shit>. Street, <laughs> Canal Bro, Street. Oh, I thought you were talking about the company Lafayette, which was a no, whole thing long time ago. It was actually Canal and Lafayette. Would, there was all these geeky uh, electronic parts places, and I bought a ten inch speaker, and I wanted to hook up my very naively. I wanted to hook up my mother's. AM radio to those 10 inch speakers. And I made a little, a little, uh, box for it to put the speaker in. That was my first speaker I ever built. And I was about 
14 years old. Well, this is the dark ages. There's no internet. <laughs> how did you know how to do this? I had a good friend who went to Brooklyn Tech High School. He was my best friend. He lived around the corner from me in uh, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. And uh, he could do, he, he was good with the soldering iron and taught me how to do that. But when we actually did this, he said, you know, there's not much power in your mother's radio to, to power this 10-inch speaker. So he built a little transistor circuit at the time. They just came out, and he built a little amplifier that he put inside, and it worked. Actually, I was in my room. I used to listen to the Alan Freed show, the Jocko show on radio and all that, and I could really crank that 10-inch that, uh, speaker because of Bruce's uh, intervention. My mom, my mom flipped out. She says, you broke my radio, you know, and in those days, a home only owned one radio. <laughs> my home did anyway, you know, but, uh, but she was okay. She was happy. I went into this career. So I, you know, I was okay after that. <laughs> okay. You know, computers, the Apple II comes out at the end of the seventies. The Mac comes out in the mid eighties. The internet hits in the nineties. Were you an early adopter? Where did you come into the computer world? It's a good question. I got a, uh, what you call a desktop in the 70s. Uh, you know, it looks like a big cheese grater. The, the, right. the first, one they, first one they brought out. And I wasn't on a laptop. I was using this and I had a, a monitor, which was extremely expensive and lo-fi and, you know, a visual monitor and, uh, a friend came around, but and, and I had a rack full of, of gear from uh, playing live and all that. And uh, that's when I began. It was it was a lot of fun. I, I don't think I started on Pro Tools because they, they had only a four-track thing called DigiDesign or something like that. They weren't, they weren't Pro Tools yet. And then there was this German company who, who made Logic. So Logic was the, the game changer from... Uh, they went a track when pro tools was still four track. So I switched over to the logic brand and I started to make really good, good recordings at home. And, uh, what it, what I ended up doing was because I didn't have an analog tape machine, I would do a lot of tricky stuff, a lot of editing on the, in the, uh, in pro tools or logic. And then I would, uh, there was some studios that already had it too. I would bring my files there and we'd lock them up with the 24-track tape or the 16-track tape that we had. So I could do a lot of work at home, which was inexpensive on editing, and then go with the edited files back and, and put it on the, the uh, tape that had the analog drums recorded on it and all that. So I did this really quite early in the game, 70s. Some, I can't remember what year, but uh, uh, probably 79 around then 7980 okay you have this external uh piece of equipment needless to say almost no one cuts on analog tape anymore for no other reason you can't really even get it yeah if you use your system will it sound to a trained ear will it sound just like tape pretty much so uh, i have had so many people tell me that uh ah you're an analog guy i can hear it you know <laughs> <laughs> and I'm mixing in the box, you know. <laughs> so that's that's good. It's a good thing that I could I could uh, capture that sound again. By the way, I do when I have these clients who can afford it. We do use a uh, 24 and 48 track going back to the uh, a, to an analog studio. There are plenty of them still in 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 use, 
but the clients have to be w- quite wealthy to use it. And uh, at the end of maybe two weeks of recording drums, et cetera, and things like that, then we'll have the, uh, the engineer put everything into Pro Tools. But we could work for in analog for like the, the two weeks time. And then once it's in Pro Tools, then I could you know do what I normally do. Okay, in the old days, if you were a big act, you'd go through a zillion reels of tape. Just if you go into a studio and you're recording on a studer or something, since tape is expensive and not uh, in volume, just use the tapes over and over again? Or do you do it old school? You record it once, we shelve it. Uh, you could use it over and over again. Tape, tape has a, a quite a long life. Uh, there's only one brand now anyway, and thank God it's good. It doesn't shed as much. It used to be sickening to play a tape all day long, and then you go and take the tape off the machine, and you see this little mountain of oxide that was shedded from uh, the, the tape going past the heads for, for hours and hours on end. Um, and then you could actually sometimes hold the tape up to a light, and you could see through the tape. It was, oh, man. It's, it, it, it's a horrible medium when you think about it. <laughs> It really is. It's it's archaic, but what studios do nowadays this is a really nice trick, and you could do it with a machine called Studer because it's got three heads instead of the traditional two heads. You can actually record a session on tape and simultaneously play it back into a computer, and as soon as it comes off the record tape, it hits a playback tape, and it goes into Pro Tools like within a split second. That is a, quite a modern day of recording now. So after you've got the drums and all that done, you could go, then open up Pro Tools and listen to it, and it just sounds fantastic. It, you can't get it fresher than that, you know. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. 
This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Okay, let's go back to growing up. People may not realize that a 10-inch speaker is actually pretty big and be pretty loud. So what'd your parents say when you're playing the radio through this amplified 10-inch speaker? Oh, every, everything you can think of. Like, shut that thing off. <laughs> you know? Turn it down. But, it, you know, I'd say, it sounds so good loud, Mom. You know, and uh, she was more sympathetic. My dad, dad just couldn't tolerate it. You know, and he hated the music. He hated rock and roll. So, <laughs> and your parents did what for a living? My father was many things. He was a shipwright in the World War II, so he built ships with the in the Navy Yard, the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Then uh, he afterwards found he was like a kind of all around handyman guy. So he became a professional photo- uh sorry, a professional carpenter, and he was a, a union member. And built a lot of houses on uh, Long Island in those days. He would just go off in his car. We lived in Brooklyn. He'd go off in his car. And after the cement workers put down the foundation, he would put the, the timber and the lumber and start building the, the house. He, quite often, he'd build a house single-handedly. Oh. Uh, one day he took me just, uh, he wanted me to hold up a beam while he nailed it on the <laughs> other end. You know, uh, And I had to, he wanted to make a man of me, he said. So it took two weeks of my life and my hands were full of splinters and, and cuts and all that. And I said, dad, I, I'm just not going to be a carpenter. You got to get used to it. <laughs> but uh, he was, he was a good guy. He taught me music. He taught me how to play mandolin, ukulele and guitar. And uh, we, used to, he played accordion too. So we used to jam together. And, and thanks to him, I knew all the songs from the thirties and the forties, you know, the music that he grew up with. The 1930s and 40s. Right, right, right. <laughs> so he literally taught you? He would get the instrument out and say, this is how you do it? Yes. And uh, this was, I got my first ukulele at five years old, and it came with a, a book. The strings were colored strings. The book had colored the colored strings equivalent in the book. And I would just put my finger where the dot was in the on the right colored string. And I was playing by the end of the day i was playing a few of the songs in the book and uh within a couple of weeks they got me a proper this is a plastic ukulele with the popeye and olive oil decals <laughs> all over it a real real woolworth's piece of um dung but anyway uh, about three months later they went out and got me a, a wooden ukulele and i started really you know jamming on that thing he was a good man it was really he he knew i, I had talent and he nurtured me Okay, this is Brooklyn in the 40s and 50s. Uh, there were a lot of, how does that put this? You know, you got to be wary of anything you say today. There were a lot of ethnicities. There were Jews, there were Italians. Was this, you know, uh, were you, you have an Italian last name. Was this something that was part of your upbringing? Yes, I lived in uh, what is now called uh, Borham Hill, which we used to just call it downtown downtown brooklyn 
So I lived on Warren Street between uh, Hoyt and Smith Street, pretty close to the, the shopping area that was not too far away. And uh, our, our building had basically all Italians in it because my grandfather owned it. So we had Italians on the middle floor. We lived on the ground floor. and We had Italians on the middle floor and on the upper floor. And next door, we had a Sicilian family who owned that house. And, you know, we were Neapolitans. Uh, not that I could speak any Italian, but there was like a lot of uh, love lost between Sicilians and Neapolitans. So we had that little battle going on, you know. Uh, but my mother made friends easily because on the other side of the street, around the corner was Wyckoff Street, which was all black, all black people. And my mother used to go to the end of the garden and she had a friend, I forget what her name was, but they addressed each other as, uh, you know, Mrs. Smith and Mrs. Visconti. And they got on, they, they would chat for about an hour each time and wouldn't invite each other in, the, in each other's houses, but they, they became good friends. Uh, across the street, we had this crazy guy who uh, had a junkyard. And he he just like was dangerous. You, he, and you've, if you got close to his junkyard and you wanted to like peek in and all, once I went in and sat on a tractor, he nearly killed me. You know, chased me off the off the tractor, and I ran back across the street to my home. Down the street, we had Irish people all on us the same street, and we had uh, Hispanic people. And uh, we all got along, kids in the street, you know, playing uh, hopscotch, ringolivio, all these crazy street games. You can only play it in the middle of the street, and you needed a lot of chalk to to make all the patterns and all that. We weren't, you know, I, I guess you can gather that we weren't wealthy. We were quite working class. But I got toys at Christmas. I got the ukulele. I got some fun stuff. And uh, my mother was a fantastic Italian cook. Uh, she would cook and sing in the kitchen at the same time. And her, her sauce or gravy, with, depending on your ethnicity, what you want to call it, started two days before wow. Sunday. <laughs> because she reduced that those jars of tomatoes to just liquid gold. It was just delicious. And she would sing Italian songs in the kitchen. She was a, a fluent Italian singer. And she had a voice like uh, an opera singer. I heard... Uh, we had a friend who had a, a disc cutter in those days in the late fifties. He cut these little seven inch discs. So I heard my mother sing uh, Italian songs on those discs in recent times, about 20 years ago. Uh, and I said to her on the phone, I said, mom, you had an operatic voice. You had, you're a contralto. Do you realize you could have sung an, an opera? And she goes, Oh, she goes, all Italian women could sing. <laughs> <laughs> She was a, she was a great sobering influence on me. You know, I didn't grow up with any heirs. I, the two of them kept me in check and themselves in check too. But they were both born in America. Yes, uh, my father was born in New Jersey and uh, to Italian immigrants, and my mother was born in Brooklyn to uh, Italian immigrants as well. They were both both born in Naples. So, what was your upbringing like? Were you popular were you good in school were you a loner were you exterior interior what kind of kid were you uh i don't know i remember the first day of kindergarten well because i cried my eyes out my mother left me and went walked out the door and that was the most traumatic day of my life up until that period 
to do without my mother. Because I was by her side all the time until I went to kindergarten. And then I remember within an hour, we, we were supposed to sit down and, and clap hands and sing a song. And I didn't like the girl to the left of me. So I clapped my, I opened up my hand so wide that I hit her in the head. And I don't know, I don't know what I was taking my anger out on, but you know why I was doing this, but I really did not like being separated from my mother. And uh, after that year, which I don't remember anything more about it, it was just kindergarten. We just played on the floor and drew, you know, pictures and all that. But uh, the first grade was quite interesting. I, I was uh, very interested in learning how to read and write. And I was already, my, my parents started me off. I could read basic words. I knew how the alphabet worked. And until I was about, up until the, the third grade, I was a good scholar. I paid attention and uh, it was good. And kind of after that, I lost interest. Uh, when I got up to fifth grade I, or sixth grade, I got a great teacher. He, he pulled me out of the doldrums of like, you know, just going to school and all that. His name was James Flanagan and he was in World War, maybe the Korean War, probably maybe the Korean War. Could have been World War II, I don't know. But he told me like lots of stories and he took me aside. He saw that I was like, like after class, we'd chat for about 15 minutes. And uh, he was really good to me. And, and, and one day he said, um, when I was in Japan, I saw men who could break wood with their bare hands. And I said, that's it. I got to learn how to break wood with my bare hands. <laughs> he, he got me like going. And I there was early karate schools in, in New York City at the time, which I was too young to go to, but I bought a book and I did my own training in my backyard. And uh, I have uh, James Flanagan or Jim, you know, we could call him. He was cool. He, we could call him by his first name in the sixth grade. Whereas before that, you had to call the teachers by their surnames, you know. Well, for people who weren't around, you were really early on the karate thing. That yeah. did not really go mainstream to like mid to late 60s. But you're an only child, correct? Yes, I am. So any viewpoints on that? Oh, I, I love being a, an only child. I don't know how to be any other way. Like I look at brothers and sisters and I see how they get along. And what I witnessed most of the time when I was growing up was that they were often fighting with each other over something. Like there's one toy to be shared between two kids and all that. I didn't share anything with anybody. They were all my toys. <laughs> and that's how I, I thought. It was great. It was great being an only child. I had a, cous a close cousin who used to come over to my house and we play for a while. And like around, I guess, 12 years old, 13, I, we just kind of, he became very religious. He became a religious Catholic and went to a parochial school, which I just couldn't handle it. I already, I already knew something was wrong. I didn't want to learn any more religion. I d didn't like it. I didn't like the nuns. I didn't like the priests. <laughs> the masses were nice. If they had a nice organ playing and some of the hymns, you know, that I, I like the musical part, but uh, uh, I, I, it just wasn't for me. And, and when I was 15, I totally left the church. I had a chiropractor who was a, a, a very modern thinker, and he was, a, a, again, like a father figure, like Mr. Flanagan was. And we were talking about religion one day. He goes, how do you feel about it? And I go, I don't know. I said, it's, it's kind of simple, and yet there's nothing there that entices me, like wants me to go to church. He goes, I stopped going to church too. And he, 
he made me the atheist that I am today. <laughs> I, I'm actually in touch with his sons now who are like in their 40s. You know, and wow. I, he's, still, he's still alive, that guy. Okay, you learn how to play the ukulele. That is pre-rock and roll. You know, there's so many definitions what the first rock and roll record was. Was it Rocket 88, Rock Around the Clock? When did you hear rock and roll? When did you become infected? That would be about uh, 10 or 11. I heard uh, these early radio shows that uh, Alan Freed did in New York. He was on once a week. And that, that's the main reason why I wanted to build this Frankenstein radio was to hear it a little bit better. I wanted to hear some, some bass coming out of the speakers. And uh, Alan Freed just played fantastic music. He was mainly playing R&B and he played a lot of black artists uh, you know, like Little Richard and, and the Moonglows, Harvey and the Moonglows, all those old doo-wop groups. And then I discovered Jocko, who was uh, a DJ. I, I don't know his full name. He just used to go like, uh, I am your engineer. Ooh, bop do How do you do? This is your engineer, Jocko. And I used to listen to him like one morning a week, and he would play the most insane. Uh, he'd go m much further with the R&B. He would find some music from the deep south that alan freed wouldn't play because alan fee was was catering mainly to a white teenage crowd and jocko was uh catering to a black crowd black audience so i had the best of both worlds i can't complain it was that that so anyway alan freed started the first rock and roll shows ever like at the uh the brooklyn paramount theater where you would have on one bill you would have buddy holly little richard harvey and the moon glows uh, the Cleftones, Shirley and Lee, all singing two songs each. And they would work from morning to night. The first show was like 10 a.m. And the last show ended at midnight. And I would pay for the, I would go in my, in Brooklyn, I would, I would take the train to the Brooklyn Paramount, pay for the, to get in and then hide in the bathroom in between shows and go back. And I, I'd stay till at least eight o'clock at night and, and see three shows and to see the people that I was hearing Alan Freed play on the radio, to see them live in color, <laughs> you know, like the Cleftones would wear double-breasted suits in chartreuse, you know, and, and chartreuse loafers. And, you know, and they, were the cool, they would have the coolest dance steps, you know, and while the guy was singing lead, the other four guys would just drop down into a split. And you can't see that on a ra on the radio, you know. You to see these people actually perform these songs live was incredible. The other thing I remember from this, Bob, is that they had one guitar amplifier in the middle of the stage, and that was to suffice for all the guitar players in the show. And the lead, the the the, the guitar chord, went all the way to the side of the stage, like it was about you know thirty feet, thirty five feet, maybe forty feet long. And only about half the acts had a guitar player. The rest was a, an in-house band. But all of a sudden, you would hear the buzz of, say, somebody plugging it in. And that had to be either Chuck Berry or Buddy Holly or, or somebody like the, I think the Moonglows had an electric guitarist who, in their band. And that's when my heart would start beating. I said, who is it going to be? Is it going to be Buddy or is it going to be, you know, Chuck Berry? And that was even the buzz of that guitar guitar being plugged in was ex exciting for me. It made my heart beat quicker. <laughs> okay. Are you an Elvis guy? Oh yeah, definitely. I was, uh, 
I have a picture of me singing Elvis songs. It's just a photograph on my baritone uke because I was still too young to have a proper sized guitar. But I could sing Love Me Tender playing accompanying myself on a baritone ukulele, which is a slightly bigger ukulele than the little guy. And uh, I could never see him in person. I don't think he ever played New York. No, he didn't. Um, that would have been that would have been you know that would amaze be amazing. But he you know had Colonel Tom Parker, who if the money wasn't right, like he would want the money from from the whole show if Elvis was to appear. So he never did shows like that. And I never saw him in person. Bowie said he met Elvis in person, but I I never did. Okay. You learn how to play the ukulele at age five. You become infected with rock and roll. What's your musical lifespan after that? When do you start playing other things? When do you decide you want to play in a band? When do you decide this is what you want to do for a living? Okay. Uh, so by uh, when my parents saw that I was outgrowing the ukulele, they got me a guitar. And a friend of theirs who sold it to them, it was his secondhand guitar, he said, uh, your son should take lessons. And, and I've got this great friend of mine. He's a guitar teacher who lived in Eastern Parkway. So it was quite a trek for me. But his name was Leon Block. And he wrote some great books, great guitar books. And uh, I went uh, the bus ride from my house to his. And I would do this all four seasons. I, went, I studied with him for three years until I was 15, 15 and a half. That would take an hour both ways. Wow. And I would I would go in the middle of the winter if it was snowing, I would not lose, miss a lesson. And it was all it was like three bus rides, you know, three bus changes. You get your what do you call it? Transfer. And uh after the three years, he said he taught me how to read and write music. He taught me how to play jazz guitar, classical guitar. He pu he pulled out uh, some Bach duets. We, we he would take a a Bach two-part invention and he would play the bass line on a guitar. And I would he he I could already read treble clef, so I would play the top line, and and they were difficult. But you know, by after about two years, I was pretty good. And then he then he surprised me. He said, "Now we're going to swap. We've gone through the book. Now you play the bass line, and I'll play the top line." I couldn't have asked for a better teacher than him. It was three years of of bliss, and I always loved him. And any assignment he gave me was never too hard. I would just practice because I wanted to to impress him. But by fifteen and a half. I started meeting local musicians um, who lived around me and from school and all that. And that's when I formed my first band. Uh, it was actually a little earlier, but uh, maybe 14. And that was with a sax player who was uh, Mike uh, DiStefano and his cousin who was, I forget his cousin's name, but he was a blind drummer. And uh, I was the guitarist, so it was guitar, sax, and the and the drummer, and we called ourselves Mike D and the Dukes. <laughs> that was my first my first band. I was a Duke, obviously. So um, we went and started playing uh, parish dances, like you know Saint Bernadette's would have dance night for the kids, heavily supervised by priests and nuns. But we'd get up there and we play rock and roll, and. Uh, then if we played a slow dance, they would start d dancing cheek to cheek and the priest would say, stop the music, stop the music. That's enough. They'd get, you know, kids who are 14 and 15 really get into it, you know, if, if you give them a half a chance. And from there, I played that for a while and I couldn't, I was too young for nightclubs. 
But when I was 17, the most amazing thing happened to me, and I can't remember exactly how, but through a friend, there was this uh, nightclub at the far end of Brooklyn called Ben Maxick's Town and Country. It was very close to Floyd Bennett Airfield. And Ben Maxick had this vision. He loved Las Vegas, and he wanted his dream was to bring Las Vegas to New York. And he couldn't find a space like those enormous, you know, uh, places that you can build in, on, in this desert in Las, in Las Vegas. Uh, he couldn't build it in Manhattan, but in Brooklyn, there was real estate where he built like a, I don't know, it's probably a, a six-acre nightclub. He could have a, a capacity was 2,000 people. And he pulled in acts like uh, Milton Berle, Robert Goulet, Sophie Tucker, the last of the Red Hot Mamas. She pl- I, I played for all these people. So through a friend, I got the job. Uh, the bass player just quit. His wife had a baby or something. And I, I was already, I, another instrument I play is, you know, double bass, the upright bass. And uh, Ned Harvey, the leader of the band, wanted a kid in the band. He wanted a young person in the band. My job was to play the bass for the dance band and play the bass for the acts like Robert Goulet and people like that. And then uh, when it was dancing time, I would have to bring my guitar and play some rock and roll songs like Elvis songs so the kids could dance to it and the kids and their parents could dance to it. It it, it was a a gig from heaven. I, I had that job for three years and I made so much money. I bought. That's when I got my own instruments. I didn't have to have my parents buy buy instruments for me anymore. And I kind of, uh, you know, I I was working till 3 a.m. So often my father would would come home and find me, uh, he'd come home from work, say, at 4.30, and I I would have my feet up watching television, and it made him so angry that I, I could just work seven nights a week and make all this money, and he had to work like a dog, you know. He would often come home at 4.30 have dinner and then go out to someone's house and put up cabinets for them, you know. And, and one day he had we had a big fight about this. Like I said, Dad, I can't. I, what do you want me to do? Work during the day as well as six hours at night? I can't do it, you know. Okay, a couple of quick questions. Were you ever Anthony? Uh, Anthony Junior. Yeah. So I'd get on the, the. I'd answer the phone, and by that time, I was fifteen. We had my father and I had the same voice, the same accent, and they go. Hello, Anthony. And I go, yeah. You go, oh, okay, Anthony, I want to tell you about a job I've got for you. On a, this would be a, a carpentry job. I go, wait a minute. You want Anthony Sr. This is Anthony Jr. <laughs> you know? So then they would start calling up. I want Anthony Jr. Or I want Anthony Sr. And all that. So we had a little problem with that. But it was fun. It was funny. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. 
We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Okay, do you finish high school, and is there ever a thought of college? No, I, I knew I wasn't going to go to college. I wasn't college material. Uh, I could not wait. Uh, being in this band until I was 17 or 18, that just led for more great work. And uh, there was no—if you know, I, I wanted to go to Juilliard. I, I knew about Juilliard and Manhattan School of Music, but you could tell from all these late nights— uh, and uh, I wasn't doing good. My, my marks were horrible in high school. I didn't get good grades. My only two subjects where I got good grades were music department grades and English. My English was good. I was always a good reader, a good speller. I liked poetry. I liked novels. I read Charles Dickens and all that. Had no problem with that stuff. But mathematics, forget about it. I was the worst. You know, and algebra, I could barely understand. Then, they, then when it got up to trigonometry, I just co- totally flunked. And I couldn't wait till I hit 16 uh, because I could leave school, and I did. I left school as soon as possible. I just kept getting gigs after gigs after that, and I never looked back. Okay, so what kind of gigs were you getting? Well, mostly club dates where you would play in a uh, either a catered hall for a wedding or a bar mitzvah or it's something those are the only two gigs available actually a wedding or a bar mitzvah or you sometimes get a jewish wedding where you had to know how to play the hora and uh, cuz jews have their own dances you know so i was so well versed i could do anything i uh, i don't know I, I played greek weddings too which back, basically it's the same music if you play hava nagila at a greek wedding they'll dance to it <laughs> it it's amazing but it's the same beat <laughs> So I was doing club dates, club dates. In the music world, by the time we hit the late 50s, early 60s, although we have uh, Bobby Darren, who has gotten a renaissance in terms of his reputation, we had Fabian, we had a lot of other stuff. We ultimately, in the 60s, had the Four Seasons of the Beach Boys. There was also a big folk scene. Where were you at on all that? At the time... 
uh, in my late teens, I definitely wanted to jump on that band bandwagon. And growing up in New York, it's not really difficult to find a manager or people who work in the music business. They either live in Manhattan or they live in Brooklyn. And they, they actually did talent scouting in those days. And at one gig, uh, this guy came up to me, Jay Fishman, and he said, I, I was singing, this time I was singing a, a duets with a guy called Carl, and we, we were singing like Everly Brothers songs. And he said, I'm going to make a record with you guys. I, I can get you a deal. And he, he actually did get us a record deal, which got local airplay. And in those days, there was not too much national radio. Everything was basically local. So he didn't work out. And I just went through a series of uh, managers who, I guess, you know, on reflection, they were wannabe managers. We didn't get a big manager who could actually get us on a big label. But I ended up, uh, through these managers, I ended up doing a lot of recording sessions. So I, I stepped, stepped into the recording studio as early as like probably in my 16th year and started playing for demo sessions. They were quite lucrative. So a songwriter would come in and just say, I've written four songs. I need you guys to just give me some backing. And we could get that done in maybe two, three hours. And I'd walk away with about you know $25 in my hand, which was good in those days. Good pay. Okay, the Beatles hit. What does that mean to you? The Beatles changed everything. I keep telling younger people, I said, the world was black and white. And then when we heard She Loves You, Yeah, 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 the world suddenly became Technicolor. They did that in music and they did that in lifestyle. You know, kids actually started looking like kids instead of, uh, old, you know, young adults wearing your, your, your bar mitzvah suit all the time when you went out, you know. The, we started wearing, buying these hip clothes that were being imported from, from England and they were inspired by the Beatles, what the Beatles wore, you know, collarless jackets and all that stuff. And, uh, I said to myself, somehow I'm going to get over to London. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but somehow I'm going to do that. And uh, that took a while, but it happened. It really, it, it happened at one point. It was a keeper, another key person who came into my life. And I had to learn how, uh, I said, okay, here's, here's how it happened. I had a publishing deal. I, a, a talent scout saw me and my wife who were doing a duet act by that time. We called ourselves Tony and Sigrid, and we were playing at the, in the village, like at the Café Wa and, and all those village kind of cool, hip, hippie places to, to perform at. And as a result of a talent scout seeing us there, he got us a publishing deal with the Richmond Organization, which is a big publishing house in, in Manhattan, and they've got branches all over the world. So Howie Richmond uh, listened to my songs for weeks on end, and... Uh, brought me in to his office one day and he said, Tony, I've got to have a serious talk with you. And I, and I got terrified. He was the CEO. I got terrified and I said, uh, okay. So I went to the, his office and he said, Tony, I've got to tell you, you've put in a lot of songs. I've listened to everything. I've listened to your tapes. He goes, I don't like your songs. <laughs> got to tell you the truth. And I go, and my face, talk about crestfallen, I nearly, my jaw dropped. I never was expecting that. So in the next breath, he says, but I like your tape recordings. He says, I like your recordings very much. He goes, I would like you to make the house record producer. I have all these kids here who write music and all that, 
but we don't have good recording facilities. I, I can't get decent demos. They sound horrible. Because your demos, wh what do you do in all that? And I go, well, I've got two machines at home, and I do all this bouncing like Les Paul does. You know, I, I, I have five guitars and two basses and things like that. I hit a pillow for a kick drum and things like that. So he set me up with a studio in the Richmond organization. This is uh, 59th Street in Columbus Circle. And I, I worked there for about a year. I was getting paid to do all this and uh, not making any records of my own anymore. But at the water fountain, the water cooler one day, I happened to be there at the same time as this very tall, distinguished gentleman was. He had uh, silvery curly hair. He was wearing a jacket and a suit, but no tie. And he said, uh, just said one thing. He said, hello, in an English accent. And I go, you're English. I was like the first English person I ever met in my life. He goes, oh, yes, I am. Uh, my name is Denny Cordell. I, I work in, in England. And I said, my gosh. I, he said, uh, what's your name? I go, Tony Visconti. I, I said, and he says, what do you do here? I go, well, I'm, I'm Tony Visconti, and I'm the house record producer. And he goes, ah my American cousin. I go, what do you mean by that? He goes, well, I'm the house record producer for this company in London. Same thing. It's the same job. And I went, that, that's fantastic. You know, and we sipped a few more cups of water and I said to him, what are you doing here? And he, he goes, uh, I'm recording a track for Georgie fame. It's a big, big British artist at the time, very jazz orientated, uh, artist and he said i'm going to record at um, i've got a session booked at a and r studios uh the r was phil ramon a phil ramon studio which was hallowed ground i had never been in there but this is cool i go well that's fantastic can i see the charts you know he told me he had clark terry on trumpet i, I adored clark terry one of the greatest jazz musicians ever trumpeters who ever lived and uh i said can i see the music and he said, I don't have any charts. I don't have any music. And I go, how do you do it in the UK? UK? And he says, well, we, we booked the studio for three in the afternoon. I hire a bunch of musicians and uh, we, we play a demo. And we, then we'd start rolling some spliffs and we smoke some, some weed, you know, and uh, we, lit, we, we just work all day until maybe by 11 o'clock at night, we've got it. You know, we've got the track. And I said, Denny, this is... New York City, we have the local 802 Musicians Union. You will be crucified if you ask Clark Terry to write down these trumpet parts that you're playing to me on this tape. He'll he'll do it, but you get it. You'll get a thousand dollar bill for it. You know, you can't ask Clark Terry to write the charts. Because what am I going to do? I said, I can read and write music. <laughs> so I wrote the chart. I wrote the chord changes, indicated in which bar, like in bar number thirty drum fill. I just wrote the words drum fill. I'm not going to write a drum fill. I, I'll leave it to the clever drummer who we, we booked. But I had to write Clark Terry's parts out. It was a very strict written thing. This took me a good part of an hour. We slammed it on the, D, the Xerox. We had these new Xerox machines and ran down 48th Street, Manhattan with uh, about eight, eight parts, put them in front of all the musicians. And right away, I saw Clark Terry Right away, he starts going, but up, but up, but up, but up, but he starts playing it off the sheet music. And I look at Danny, and Danny looks at me, and he, Danny's got this big grin on his face. This, is, this isn't, isn't going to be like London. This is, we're going to get this done. When I told him he'd be crucified, he was very, very worried. By the way, he had just produced a wider shade of pale. 
and uh, he was rolling on you know pop success but he didn't have a lot of money so the session took all of 45 minutes and we had this fantastic track the song was because i love you it's a early georgie fame hit and clock terry was cool everybody was cool they they liked the fact that it was well prepared so um a week two weeks later he goes back to london and he phones me up and says um how soon could you get here i go uh now i can go now <laughs> i'm not doing anything <laughs> so he said okay he goes well i'm going to uh i i i after i spoke to you i went to i met a few other people record producers and i i even uh spoke to phil specter asking him to come and work for me i said oh you'd be lucky if you got phil specter to work for you I, he's not that kind of guy you know but anyway, he says, you're the guy I want. He says, the way you work, you did that session was great. I need someone to translate what I hear in my head into music, into musical notes. And uh, two weeks later, I was in London and went, went to the studio. But my very first day, I, I was terribly jet-lagged. But then he took me to a Manfred Mann session, which he was producing. He was producing too many people, and he really did need an, an assistant. And after about two hours... He left me with Manfred Mann on my own. Now, Bob, I had no experience, no experience at dealing with, especially with British people who spoke a different language, basically. Um, so um, they hated me. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't like my American accent. So I thought, I'll be a little cheerful. So I was in the studio and we did a lot of takes. We did up to six takes. And they were already in misery, these guys. They, they wanted Denny, and they got this young American punk instead. So I said, okay, here we go. We're going to do take seven. Lucky take seven. And they went, oh, they all audibly groaned. <laughs> I was like being a DJ, you know, lucky take seven. And so when Denny come back, came back, we finally got a good take, and he listened to what we had done, and they did as well. They warmed up to me at the very, very end. But that was, it was, oh, it was horrible. My first day was so horrible. And the ability not to understand them, like, you know, they've got different words, like if they're happy about something, they're chuffed. I didn't know that word chuffed. I didn't know what chuffed meant. It, it sounds like a chimney going up. <laughs> what the hell does that mean? You know? So uh, uh, that, was, that was it. That's how I got there. And that's basically the beginning of my career is what, what I do today. Okay, so play it out. You're in London now. You work with Man from Man. You're working with Denny. What comes next? Well, with Denny, I play. I went on to all kinds of sessions, including more jo another Georgie Fame session too. I tagged along on his Procol Harum sessions and helped. Um, he again, he left me in charge one day, which went down a little bit better. They they knew me already. They I came to a few before he left me with them and they 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 knew i was on their side and i i knew what i was talking about so i i remember i produced a whole track from scratch called magdalene my regal zonophone uh, all in one day and denny was in awe of that he came back he goes you did this all in one day he was he was slow and i was fast so after that i worked with his group called the move which was uh birmingham's answer answer to the beatles like birmingham was called the the birmingham beatles at one point because they wanted they emulated everything the beatles did and i had quite a few hit records with them both as a co-producer and an arranger 
the first record I did for them was a song called Flowers in the Rain. And uh, I, I recorded, uh, you know, everybody was doing Eldon Rigby. They wanted strings and all that stuff. And I thought, it's time we got off the strings and onto some other classical instruments. So because it was Flowers in the Rain, I thought of Mendelssohn. And I thought, I'm going to write something pastoral. And for that, you need a flute, you need an oboe, a clarinet, and a French horn. That's, that's a, a, a wind combination that you normally plays pastoral music. So it was a wacky arrangement I wrote. It was reached number two in the charts. And when Radio 1 in England opened, you know, they had these, this corny radio before, but Radio 1 was the pop station. I listened to it at 8 o'clock in the morning. I wanted to hear that this station opening up. The DJ... Tony Blackburn, the first record he played was Flowers in the Rain by The Move. <laughs> and I nearly screamed and jumped off my couch, you know. It was it was just a fantastic experience. Well, just to stop there for a second, that was an interesting band. They used to come to America. They canceled tours. They broke up, whatever. But Roy Wood was seen as the talent, and Jeff Lynne was a secondary character, even though he sang a certain amount. Then there was the first ELO, then they split apart, there was Roy Wood's Wizard, and then ultimately Jeff Lynne goes on to this incredible career with ELO and more. Did you have any idea at that point in time, or was he just another guy in the band? Well, when they formed, uh, not ELO, what did you say, Wizard, uh, Roy wanted me to play keyboards in the band, and uh, he was dead serious, and I said, Roy, I, I, he thought I played keyboards because I arra wrote arrangements. I had already written three arrangements for them by that time. I said, no, I, I actually write them on the classical guitar. Uh, and he says, well, we've got enough guitar players in the band. Are, are you sure you <laughs> <laughs> so are you sure you can't play keyboards? I go, no, I, I, I have to give up on that. So Jeff Lynne came in around that time, and uh, you know they, they did a great job. All, of, all, that, all that, that worked. But I gave birth to some of that. Some of my soul is in the, in the subsequent things that Roy did. We always got on really great. He's a great guy. Okay, so from the move, keep telling us what happened. Uh, well, from the move, my boss said, it's time you got a band of your own. He goes, uh, you know how to do conduct a session on your own now. You know, and I was with him by his side for a whole year. And uh, my friend, so he tried me out with a guy called Bidu. First of all, he walked into our offices. Bidu is a famous Bollywood composer, but he came to London uh, as uh, he called himself the Indian Elvis. And in truth, he had a voice just like Elvis Presley, but he had a bit of an accent. So I made one record with Bidu, and I said, uh, and then he said, well, I'm not going to, it didn't do anything. And uh, we didn't leave acrimoniously. It just didn't do anything. So David dropped Bidu, and he said, you pick your band. You go out and pick your band, who you want to work with. I said, okay. So I heard this band called Tyrannosaurus Rex played every weekend on John Peel's radio show. And I happened to see the underground, I got a copy of the underground newspaper. I forget what it was called now. And Tyrannosaurus Rex were playing right around the corner from my office on Tottenham Court Road in England. So after work, I, I noted the time, it was 7 p.m. I left work at 6 p.m., went to the corner pub, a, a pub called the Tudor. I fortified myself with a big pint of ale. And then I walked down to Tottenham Court Road and went to that nightclub where Tyrannosaurus Rex was playing. And I walked down the steps. It was like a 
red light, dim light, dim red lighted steps. And I hear the band playing coming up through the stairwell. And, and it was dead quiet. And I, I'm used to going to gigs where the band, uh, the, the audience is clapping, singing along and all that. And I thought, no one's there. I walk in that room and there were about 75 kids sitting on the floor, cross-legged, listening attentively to Mark and Steve sing these songs. I have never seen that in my life. They, they weren't singing along. They were just worshiping him. So um, I approached the group afterwards, and uh, I approached the drummer first because I, I didn't even know if Mark, Mark was like an alien. Mark Boland was weird, and he sang in this very affected voice, which I, I thought maybe he's French. You know, I didn't, didn't know how to approach him. Anyway, Steve said, just don't talk to me, man. Talk to him. He's the leader. So I gave Mark my business card, and Mark followed up. The next day, he came to our offices, and he phoned from the street. He said, I just happened to be passing your offices, and I'd like to come up and, and audition for Denny Cordell. So that's how it began with uh, my, my very first talent scouting produced, came up with Mark Boland and Tyrannosaurus Rex. Okay, but they were an acoustic act then. How did it end up becoming an electric act and called T-Rex? Well, that was about all I could handle. You know, uh, uh, two people I could handle. I could pl play the psychology games with two people. Uh, they, they had, like, percussion in the band. They had bongo drums, conga drums, and all that. And um, they, uh, Denny said, okay, we'll take. I like them. We'll take them on as our... our uh, token underground group that was that was the exact words token underground group and already there was a very popular in england a band in england called the incredible string band and tyrannosaurus rex were not unlike them so there was a a, a big market for this kind of rock folk uh, early you know psychedelic folk people will call it so we made these kind of psychedelic rock uh, folk records for three albums with the acoustic instruments and then by the end of the second album, Mark used to come around to my apartment and he would always pick up my Fender Stratocaster guitar and play it. And he ended up borrowing it on the third album. And then that's when we started going electric, but not the drum kit yet, except everything had to be like miniature. So they did get a drum kit for the next album where it was a toy drum set from uh, Hamley's toy shop in London. So it's actually the, uh, a drum kit for like, an eight-year-old, but we detuned the drums and Steve played the hell out of these drums. Like the, so it's on a, especially on a song called cat black, the wizard's hat. Uh, you can hear this full drum kit, but it's actually a toy drum kit called from a company called Ch from a company called Chad Valley. <laughs> okay. In America, the incredible string band, I think it was on Warner brothers. They had a certain amount of a presence T-Rex, was almost nothing. You saw right a white swan in the bins. What was the profile of the group in the UK? By the time they did Right a White Swan, they were uh, Mark was quite famous because he was so cute, and he was a teenage. Um, he noticed that the girl, the audience was made mainly of girls who were screaming while he was on stage. This is towards the f the fourth album, and um, with the electric guitar, and he borrowed my bass. Uh, this is uh, this is very funny because Wired to White Swan is an A flat, which means he had to play it with the f capo on the fourth fret of the guitar. And then when he borrowed my bass to play the bass part, 
he had to put the cape the capo on the fourth fret of the bass which i never saw a bass player do in my life put a capo on a bass but he played all the, the guitar and the bass and he, uh, by this time, we had uh, Mickey Finn in the band. Steve Peregrine took was fired, un- unceremoniously fired. And that record took about two hours to make, Ride a White Swan. And uh, we put it out, you know, we always put out singles as Tyrannosaurus Rex, but, but they didn't do very well, never did very well. We did a name change. We called the band T-Rex. Uh, John Peel reluctantly played it. He thought they, that they had sold out. And he was ready to discard them quickly because he defeated the underdog. And now Mark was becoming popular. That was like, a, a, you know, an anathema to, to John Field. But he played it. And then Radio One took it up. And that record was played night and day. And we sold, uh, we were selling upwards of about 6,000 a day. In those days, you know, there was no internet. So you had to go out and buy a record if you liked it. And maybe you taped taped it off your friend's record player but basically record sales were enormous in those days but he was now he was a megastar overnight this is it your moment this is your time to make your comeback with purdue global when you come back with a purdue global degree you create opportunity for yourself your family and your future it's a degree you can be proud of a degree that employers will trust and respect Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. People don't understand how big he really was. He was as big as they get. He was as big as the Beatles, and Ringo said so himself. 
uh, when he made the movie with him, he said, he said that when, and then Mark went four piece as well. By then they were drawing the same crowds and the same reactions, probably even bigger crowds than the Beatles because the Beatles never really played arenas, uh, apart from the Shea stadium or something like that. Mark was playing arenas by 1972 in, in the UK. Uh, not so good in America though. He'd never quite broke the back of that one. So how did you feel having this incredible success? I loved it. You know, now all my dreams are coming true. I wanted to be a successful record producer. I'm also singing backups on these records. I'm very much a part of the band when they're in the studio. We, we get on, uh, we get along as friends. Uh, it, it was the dream everybody wants to happen when they get into the music business. You know, I had about three solid years of T-Rex to see, it was called by the press. And Mark was controversial. He used to do the wickedest interviews. He would really be insulting to the journalists and uh, just to get controversy. You know, they, they, they try to tear him apart, but they were actually giving him more ink than the normal, <laughs> the normal rock star because, because they wanted to tear him down. You know, it was so cool. He knew what to do. And how did Bang a Gong Get It On come together? That was on a trip to America that we both coincidentally went on at the same time. He got a, a, a mini tour planned for him, and it was to uh, start in New York, and then they would fly to L.A. to work with Flo and Eddie from the Turtles, and they got Flo and Eddie got a studio, and I just happened to be there to see my parents. I came home for a trip to Brooklyn to see my parents, but Mark knew I was there, and he said, let's make a record. You're here. So we hired Media, Media Sound in Manhattan. It was like a jazz studio, but we did Jeepster and Monolith. We did a couple of tracks that would later appear on Electric Warrior. Then the trip to LA came up because, do you want to go with us? You, you want to go to LA? I go, of course I do. <laughs> so we flew out to LA. Flo and Eddie arranged Wally Hyder's studio for us, which was like one of the best studios in, in LA at the time. And that's where we recorded Get It On, Bang A Gong. And I've got some lovely photos from there. And uh, they, they, they made the Jewish connection, too. When, when Flo and Eddie, who were both Jewish, found out that Mark was Jewish, there's something deeper about that relationship took place. You know, it was really great. And then they started making Yiddish jokes. You know, I couldn't <laughs> believe it. They, they grew up, Mark grew up with, you know, he heard these words when he was growing up. And so did Flo and Eddie, you know. And if you live in New York, no matter if you're Italian French or Jewish, you learn Yiddish. That's, that's one of the languages you pick, you pick up the words. So we had sessions that were so funny. And I, le I left the tape running, you know, just cracking jokes all the time. And that's where we re-recorded about four or five more songs at Wally Hyder Studios with Flo and Eddie at their auspices because they made it really easy for us to work there. And then the rest of the tracks were on the flight back to uh, London we took up in Trident Studios, in, which was a great studio in Soho, and finished the rest of the album. It was, it was like a Frankenstein album, all different consoles, all different sounds. But I mixed it in Trident Studios, so that in that way I made it a more cohesive, cohesive sounding record. But that was we were we were in seventh heaven, Bob. Okay, but the sound of the guitar on Bang a Gong. Can you tell us anything about getting it? It just has an incredible sound. Yes. Uh, he had a two pedals. One was a Wawa, and the other ones, you know where the Wawa is. It's, of uh, course. You know, it goes, uh, 
so and another one was a treble booster which had it was had added distortion and crunch to the sound and he had that almost maxed out so between the wawa which if you don't move the wawa you could move it to a certain position and get a certain tone but when you move it up and down you get the wawa effect so between positioning the pedal in a certain way and having the screaming bird uh put in the circuit he got this crunchy sound and then i would go up and you know like let's make it loud or turn up the marshall amp and all that and basically that was the sound what i did add in the uh mixing which he loved was slapback he he was so keen on the you know the elvis presley slapback uh up the little richard slapback and all that stuff and uh he wanted it on both his guitar and his voice and it became a signature sound uh having a, the kick drum to the fore was another sound we were one of the early doers of that you know kick you listen to our early r&b you can barely hear the kick drum but suddenly in the 70s, people were saying, what, 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 the kick drum's a great thing. Why is it so quiet in the mix? So we had the drums up pretty loud. We even put slap back on the drums too for the, the tom fills. And I said after about two years of this, I said, you can get me out of bed at five in the morning and put me behind a console. I'll get you that sound in, in half an hour. You know, it was, it was a formula. We invented a formula and we were accused of formulizing the sound. And I said, yep, that's what we're doing. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Did you know Get It On was going to be a gigantic hit when you finished it? No, we honestly didn't. We were doing everything the same we always did, Bob. And we put singles out. They weren't hits. Minor hits, but not major hits. Something was right about this one. It was more brevity in the lyrics. That helped. You know, Mark was writing these sagas in his earlier work. They were based on Tolkien and, you know, full of dwarves and elves and things like that and um he he just did the right stuff you know there's this couplets and then the chorus get it on bang a gong get it on that's the chorus that's the shortest chorus he had written in his life <laughs> and that was the secret brevity and the strings that was another thing he got very superstitious about the strings when we did our next single uh gosh i can't remember what it was oh metal guru right uh he said let's let's go in uh let's just put mix it and i go mark the strings we've had the strings on right white swan and get it on i think it's part of our good luck and he's and he turned pale he goes you're right let's have strings on on hot hot love it was hot love let's have strings on hot love so uh that was it from from then to the very end i did uh eight albums with him we, I had to get down and write some pretty nifty strings every time we made an album afterwards. Okay, The Slider, summer of 72, I believe, in the UK, gigantic. Bang a Gong is delayed as a hit in the US and is a big hit, certainly on FM. Radio formats were changing. The Slider meant nothing in America and meant everything in the UK. You have any insight on that? That's interesting. I wasn't aware of that. I, I know a lot of Americans now like The Slider. You know, looking back, it, it is a fantastic album. It's the best of the three, the first three. Uh, the next one would be an album called Tanks, which tanked. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, The Slider was phenomenal. And um, I think it, Mark was at his best. His guitar playing was at his best. His writing was at its best. And uh, we took a little more time on it. Um, 
another funny thing happened on that. He stopped using Flo and Eddie. We, we originally had them on one or two tracks. And then uh, we went in on another day and he said, we're going to do backing vocals. I go, what happened to Flo and Eddie? He goes, uh, they copped an attitude with me. I go, what happened? What did they say? He goes, they wanted to get paid. <laughs> Honestly. So I'm looking at him. I am getting paid as the producer, but you know, not as a backing singer. So that was a shame, a real, real shame. I think later on when he, in his later, late seventies, before he died, he got back, he got them on one of his self-produced albums. He got them back again. I hope he paid him. I think he did. Okay. He ultimately dies in this car accident. And gigantic in England, you were the producer. How big a talent was Mark Bolin? He was great. His songwriting abilities were enviable. Even David said, David Bowie said, Mark writes the greatest lyrics. And they're all, he, his, his imagery was incredible, like, uh, you know, Diamond Star Halo. You wear a Diamond Star Halo. That's beautiful. David wouldn't come up with Diamond Star Halo. But then he would go on in the same song, more metaphors like that, you know, crazy ones. And uh, his guitar playing was primitive. He, he, I worked it out one day. He's got a knowledge of seven chords. <laughs> but, <laughs> but oh boy, what he did to some people who say, oh, but oh boy, what he did with those seven chords. But, you know, he would slide his guitar, up, his capo up and down the fret. He could play in any key he wanted. And uh, some chords he obviously didn't know, and I wondered why he couldn't even figure that out. And I tried to teach him these chords. He wouldn't want to learn. He, he, he just had this, he, he was formulaic himself. And uh, his, his records were still sa sounding the same, but why not? Because it was a really good formula we, we had going. But I, I'd say his talent was in the, in the songwriting. He, he must have written over 200 songs, uh, maybe even more than that. Okay, you're working for the company when you find Tyrannosaurus Rex. Today, well, let's talk pre-internet. A record producer would get 4 or 5%, either from record one or when recoup is hit. You getting paid a producer's fee on every record? What's going on with you? So everything up to at the up to the end of Electric Warrior, I was getting a royalty. And till this day, Bob, it's the gift that keeps on giving. I get royalties three times a year from that company, and uh, I, re I recorded a few other uh, acts for them as well. But from the slider, they wanted to. Um, we had a deal, and Mark said, um, "I don't know. Uh, we had a royalty situation for a while." Then his company stopped paying it. They said, we feel you've had enough. You know, <laughs> the record's long been paid for. You know, it's sold. And we're not selling those, those amounts of records anymore. Then the next album, Tanks, um, I worked without a contract. He, um, his wife came to me and she said, you know, um, we feel, we spoke to Mark's lawyer and we feel that um, you don't need a, a, a contract anymore. You don't need a royalty anymore. We're going to make a deal with you. We'll pay you 10,000 pounds per annum, something like for the rest of your life, but maybe it wasn't. It was like for the next five years or something like that. So I did. I made the next album, Zinc Alloy, under those conditions, the fourth album that was the big T-Rex hit. And it did well, but uh, 
Then Mark started the cocaine and alcohol abuse started getting out of control, and he was being really unkind to everyone. He was like, he was a drunk, you know. He was like cursing everyone out, uh, being a very, very unruly. So I had a little talk with him at the end. I said, "We're going to part company. I don't like the way you're treating people," and that was it. We parted under those conditions. How long did you get the ten thousand dollars? I never got it. I. <laughs> I think I got the ten thousand for that the fourth album, the Zinc Aloe album, and that was it. And uh, it was, you know, it's a little foggy in my brain because I don't really want to think about it that much. Uh, how David was the complete opposite. He was a gentleman of his word. He would always honor his contracts. Oh, even if it was just a, a handshake, he would always honor what he said. Mark was the opposite. He would just hope you'd, you you would conveniently forget about it. You know. Okay, so you're working with T-Rex over a period of years. You're a record producer. You're not in the band, so you're working on other stuff. What are you working on? Well, I went through many period, different periods. Uh, in the 80s, I no, had No, 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 no. Back in the 70s, 70s, late 60s, when how do you ultimately get hooked up with David Bowie? That was really easy. My publisher was uh, Mark Boland's publisher. And I, the, my offices were in the same house as the publishing house. So Gus Dudgeon's, uh, Gus Dudgeon produced Elton John. He was one house producer. I was another house producer, Denny Cordell and Don Paul. We were four house producers for that company who had a, a label called uh, New Breed at first and then Good uh, New Breed Productions. Oh, I forget what else it was called. But David Platts, who was the publisher who owned all these companies, including our contracts, had all these writers. One of his main writers was Anthony Newley. And when he heard David Bowie sing, he, he saw a young Anthony Newley. He, he hired him on the spot. He signed him up for a publishing contract. And David had already made a record for DRAM Records, which is an, a Decca company, which tanked. It really didn't do very well. And um, although it showed off his skills and uh it, it was all over the place so one day david platz calls me into into his office after i had all these tyrannosaur these yeah the tyrannosaurus rex hits and you know i'm making money for the label he said uh i've got an artist i'm i think would be a good match for you and i said okay i'm, I'm listening he goes so he put on the dram album when he he sang like when i live my dream which sounded exactly like anthony newley then he did another played another song was the Laughing Postman, which was, he did this chipmunk voice, you know, half-speed voice where he started laughing like a postman, uh, but but with a chipmunk. And then all the other songs bore no, uh, there was no continuity in styles. So he said, what do you think? I said, he's great. He's got a great voice. He's a great writer, but he's all over the place. I, If I were to work with him, I would have to focus him. He'd have to do one thing. And uh, I think the obviously obvious thing for him to do would be to be a rock singer. He's got the chops. He can do it. I'm sure he can do it. He goes, okay, I was thinking along those lines. He goes, would you like to meet him? I go, yeah. He goes, step right this way. <laughs> and he opened the door. It was a setup. He asked David to come in that day to meet me. He opens the door to his like inner sanctum there. And David's waiting for the meeting. And, uh, I, I, for the first thing I noticed what, was, were his eyes. 
you know, I thought he's a good looking boy, but what's he got these two different colored eyes for? You know, what's all that about? So he shakes my hand and he's very, very like, you know, excited to meet me. And I found out that he was a, like, um, I don't know how you say the equivalent of an Anglophile, an American file. You know, he, he loved American music. He grew up on R&B records, same as I did. We loved, we loved the odd person out, like the, the uh, legendary Stardust Cowboy. We both were in love with those kind of records. Nervous Norvis, who sang Transfusion. He had all those records that I had. And we found that out in that interview uh, outside of David Platz's office. And we got on like brothers. And by six, when six o'clock rolled around, we said, uh, oh, we got, they were locking up. They kicked us out. So we walked down Oxford Street, which is one part of town, and we walked and talked for another hour until we got to King's Road in London. And uh, we were looking at all the windows at clothes we couldn't afford yet. And we came to the, uh, the art theater they had there. Forget the name of the street, but they had they only played scratchy black and white films, which we we said we like scratchy black and white films. Both of us like those, and they had a knife in the water playing at one of these cinemas, and uh, we said, "Shall we go in and watch it?" So this is about eight eight in the evening, so we bought two tickets, sat down, we watched the knife in the water, and we eventually said good night at about eleven thirty at night, from say three thirty in the afternoon. That's we were such good friends by the end of the day, and then we started seeing each other socially for quite a while, and then uh, he said Decca wants me to make one more record, and I made this this record with him. It's kind of a it's a record called London by Tata. It was as close. It was pop record. It wasn't a rock record. It was a pop record, and uh, they had another male artist. It was either they wanted to drop one of them. It was going to be Bowie or Cat Stevens. So when I, <laughs> I produced this less than, <laughs> you know, this less than kind of production, they kept Cat Stevens and dropped David. But actually, it freed him from that label. He, you know, he would have, they would never have seen him as a future rock star. I, I always did. I knew he was going to go places. So we, we, we kind of rambled around over the next couple of years. We never really did anything great until uh, the Space Oddity album, which we, worked on together and then the man who sold the world which was the next one now he was a rock star okay space oddity that's gus right are you involved in space oddity the track no so when david played it to me i said to him uh i know what you're doing the there's a guy up in space now you know the nasa just put a guy in space in his tin can i know what you mean by the tin can and uh I said, but it's a cheap shot. You know, if it's, it's based on a special event. It's not based on, uh, like, what are you going to do? Write an album full of science fiction songs, which he eventually, <laughs> right. <laughs> he goes, he says, yeah, but he goes, everyone's saying it's a hit record. I go, I think it is a hit record. But I said, in good conscience, I can't go this route with you. You know, go, go with some Gus loves you. He adores you. And he had already worked with, uh, when uh, David used to be on Decca, the Decca label, Gus already had worked with him. So I went to Gus and I said, you like this? He goes, yeah. He goes, why don't you do it? He goes, you're crazy, Tony. I go, no, I don't like it. I can't work. I can't produce something I don't like. And he said, you're sure you're okay with this? I go, you got my blessings. So he finds Paul Buckmaster, who was also published by David Platts. It was all kind of in-house. And when I heard it, 
I changed my mind. I said, shit, I should have produced that record. <laughs> but, but I don't think I could have done Gus's job. He, he threw the kitchen sink in it, and I wasn't yet a kitchen sink producer. I would have, it would have been a more subtle piece of work. But since then, with all these Atmos and all these surround sound mixing things, Gus Gus has passed away had passed away years ago. I have been mixing Space Odyssey over and over again in new formats, so I'm quite familiar with the song. Okay, but you work on the album after you hear the song. Definitely, yeah. So that sh- surprised me. This is where our friendship came in. So after the the song was made, I I met David back in the office, and I go well, I suppose you're going to be working with Gus from now on. You guys did great together. He goes, oh, no, no, I had to get at, I had to get that out of the way. Now let's make the album. So he invited me back to make the rest of the album, which was good. You know, it was a, it's not a bad album. It's got some really good tracks on, great songs. And then Space Oddity sticks out like a sore thumb. You know, it's clearly the best track on the album. But, um, you know, you live and you learn. <laughs> Okay, then The Man Who Sold the World, which means nothing when it comes out, nor does Space Oddity in the U.S., but I know it had some impact in the U.K., so tell me about that album. Okay, by this time, uh, David was coming around to my flat with Mark Bolin. Sometimes David would, would miss his last train to Beckenham, and he would sleep over. Sometimes he would bring girls back to my flat to have sex with them. But it was clear that he had to have a, a flat of a house of his own. You know, he was like living between friends' ha- apartments and his go back to his parents now and then to get the laundry done, things like that. So he found this big house in Beckenham, Kent, which is Haddon Hall, which is, you know, everyone knows about Haddon Hall now. It's an old Victorian house. It was beautiful. It was like a film set from Hammer Films. It was just absolutely beautiful and eerie. Uh, it felt haunted. I believe it was. So he lives there, and he and Angie, his wife, felt that it was just too big just for the both of them. And uh, they asked myself and my girlfriend, Liz, would they like to come and sh- share the, the place with them? And we took one look at it, and definitely the real estate was huge. You know, there was a lot of apartment there. There was a, a, a wine cellar where we could set up a, a band, a drum kit, and rehearse. So Liz and I moved into into Haddon Hall, and it was like really great for a while until it became a kind of meeting place for all the young kids in the neighborhood. And there would be nights I'd come home from work exhausted. There'd be about 20 people in that apartment, you know, just hanging off the back. There was a beautiful balcony around around the apartment, uh, you know, hanging outdoors, smoking dope. Uh, People would disappear into a bedroom upstairs. It was just like, this is getting like too hedonistic for me, you know, for a guy who just wanted to go come home from work and chill, you know. So we still kept, we still made The Man Who Sold the World under those conditions. I moved uh, to a nearby town called Penge and we went down, we finally got Woody in the band. Uh, Mick, we had Mick Ronson in the band. He was heaven sent. And Mick slowly got rid of everyone in the band that he had friends up in Hull that he wanted to bring them down. So he, the first thing was he replaced our London drummer with uh, Woody Woodmansey, who was in his band called The Rats back up in Hull. And uh, I was the bass player. So Mick, Woody, and myself, and David on 12-string guitar 
formed a group, which we went through many names, but one of the names that, w- that stuck with us was called The Hype. Uh, we were called Joe the Butcher at one point. And uh, so we went into the studio and we we said, let's, we, we liked, Woody, uh, Mick Ronson loved Cream. And he said, if you're going to play bass with me, he goes, I want you to listen to Jack Bruce in Cream. He goes, I want you, says, that's the kind of bass player I want to work with. Because I was up until that point a meat and potatoes bass player. I played funky stuff. But then I listened to Jack Bruce and he's playing bass like a lead guitar. You know, he's bending all the notes and he's playing fast scales and going all over the place. I said, I went back to Mick. I said, oh, I get it. You want me to play lead bass, which wasn't a thing yet. I mean, Jack Bruce was the only one doing that. So I started showing off and I was also a guitar player. So this was easy to, to, to do this for me, just to play all over the place and play complicated stuff. And some of those parts like are iconic. Like you, you hear Nirvana playing the man who sold the world. They're playing my bass part, you know, and, and other people who ventured to play the title track, that is some complicated bass part. And, uh, I'm in a tribute band now where we do play some of those songs on stage. And it, it takes me about, two or three months to get back into shape again and remember all those notes again. But uh, The Man Who Sold the World didn't do what we thought it would do. We thought we were going to be the next cream or we thought we were going to be, you know, a really big prog rock band. But they didn't like us. You know, we did a big gig at uh, Roundhouse and we were booed (laughs) off off the stage. Not off the stage, but we were, you know, some of the, some of the songs went down great, but some people were just booing us through, throughout the songs. And uh, they, they couldn't get that bass. He already had Space Oddity as a hit. They just wanted to like, hear more Space Oddity. But he, he never did write those songs, those more than Space Oddity songs, until maybe Ziggy Stardust. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for The Everyday Guy. 
The Walker Hayes for JCPenney Collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Okay, you part ways, he makes a somewhat acoustic album, Hunky Dory, which is phenomenal, but the real breakthrough comes in 72, the same time as uh, The Slider with Ziggy Stardust. You are not involved in those records, yet you're not involved with Aladdin scene, which I thought was a little bit of a disappointment, but you come back with uh, Diamond Dogs. So what's your relationship with David and what's your observation of him during that period? Well, during his Ziggy days, he made contact with me again. There was a little, we didn't speak to each other for about a year after I left uh, the the hype, you know, the, the man who sold the world. Because it wasn't a hit, there was no point in staying together. He had to rethink his plan. I had to go back to Mark Boland and make records like The Slider and get gainfully employed again. I wasn't making a lot of money in, in Beckenham. And um, suddenly, uh, then he said to me once, uh, like we should have dinner together. And I said, well, have dinner at my house. My, um, my mother's here and she's made like these great, <laughs> this great, my, this great Italian food. So he comes in, in all his Ziggy regalia. He, he, he was Ziggy off stage. And when I say that he had the like six inch heels, the, the spiked uh, orange red hair and all that. And he's wearing, you know, epaulets on his shoulders and he's, he's, he's Ziggy Stardust. And we have this babysitter who was a Bowie fan, we later found out. And she's in the kitchen uh, with holding a, a, a saucepan that had boiling water in it with the baby's bottle in it. Uh, we had a, an infant son at this time. And David walks into the kitchen and she's, it's, she, she sees it's David Bowie. And she screams and drops the boiling water on the floor. And uh, <laughs> he had that impact on people. <laughs> But anyway, she managed to recover, and uh, we had a l- lovely get-together. And then from then on, we saw each other socially a lot and had dinners and restaurants. So by the time Diamond Dogs came around, he was you know, working with other people, but he said he was making an album. He had been all over town with every engineer, every recording studio, and he just can't get a good mix out of the record. He just It was made under kind of horrible conditions i won't go into the engineer who made the album but it wasn't a well-recorded album you you needed to do some serious uh repair jobs on the album so i said okay and i had just built my first home studio i had a 16 track studio in an area called shepherd's bush and i said try out my studio you haven't tried every studio in town because you haven't tried this one so i do the first mix of diamond dogs with him and he takes it home and phones me up at like five in the morning and says, you know, he thought I stayed up all night like he did. And he said, it sounds fantastic. Let's finish the album in your studio. So that's how we got back together again all after all those years. Okay, Diamond Dogs, he's finally playing arenas in America. Rebel Rebel is a huge hit, but 
the critics start to turn on him. They say this is a little obvious. He's giving the people what they want. This comes a complete left turn with young Americans. Tell us how that happens. Um, oh, okay. <clears throat> These always start with a phone call from him. And after not hearing from him for, for ages, and he said that he's uh, down in Philadelphia at Sigma Studios, and they just started working on a new album. He goes, I want to make a soul album. He goes, uh, but not, you know, it's not going to be like a soul album. It's going to be David Bowie sings soul, you know. I said, okay, I'm game. You know, we, we knew we knew our backgrounds. We knew I would fit in, and uh, he knew I would fit in. And about two days later, I'm flying to Philadelphia from London, and I had to show up for work. I just couldn't go to the hotel. I did not go straight to the hotel. The limo driver said, I have uh, instructions to take you directly to the studio, Sigma Studios in Philly. So I walk in there, and it's about 11 at night, midnight, something like that. And he's flying high. You know, little Peruvian marching powder was involved. And then the band is Carlos Alomar. Uh, Andy Duncan, no, Andy Newmark on drums from Sly and the Family Stone, who I was supposed, I was surprised to find out he was a white guy because he's in the funkiest band on earth at that time. And the bass player was a bass player from heaven, Willie Weeks, who played with um, Donny Hathaway. And I had a band, uh, Willie Weeks, uh, uh, he played on a song called Everything is Everything where Willie, Willie, Willie Weeks takes about a five-minute bass solo on that. So I said, Willie, I love you, man. And he, and he was like really playing it down. He wasn't smiling. He wasn't going out. He, he had this like kind of repressive personality at the time. So we, we start working immediately on the, uh, the title track, Young Americans. We start working on that. And Willie's playing really simple. He's playing like one and five, one. Boom, ba boom, ba boom, ba boom, ba boom, like that. And I'm here. I, I know he can shred. So we let that go. Uh, it was too late. I think the next day we wanted to move on to another song. And he continues to play, to play this pedestrian, these pedestrian bass parts. And he said, I said, Willie, I heard you play Everything is Everything on the Donny Hathaway album. I said, why aren't you playing that way for us? And he just crossed his arms and he said, because you didn't ask me to. <laughs> I said, well, I'm asking you. I said, yeah, I'm asking you now. I said, you can shred, man. You can." So you could hear the difference on the, the rest of the tracks on the album. He starts bouncing around and he's taking all kinds of, uh, you know, playing all kinds of tricky stuff. Oh, he's a genius, genius bass player. I, I so much enjoyed working with him. And we were a mixed, racially mixed band too, which worked perfectly. You know, at first we we were going to get those guys. If I get Gamble and Huff, maybe, who who uh, they owned that they that was their studio, which they did a lot of R and B stuff in there. And he, David approached them first, I think, and they they said we don't want no blue eyed white boy stealing our music. They told him that it was it was an insult, you know. So when he hired the studio anyway, he brought in his own band, and it was we were a mixed band. That's the way. It, you know, music should be played, you know, you don't have to be a certain race to place any kind of music. It's, it's a different world now. And it was then too. Well, it was just turning. It was, it's changing. Times were changing then. So 
How does John Lennon get involved? That was freaky. That was really freaky. This is uh, uh, a kind of, not, I, could, I could make a short story out of it. So we move operations. We do Young Americans. We do as much as we can in Philadelphia. And then we move operations to New York. He puts me up into like Sheraton Hotel Pierre or something like that, really expensive hotel and all that. He, had, he was just throwing money away in those days. And he hires a studio there and to, to do some further work in that studio. So uh, we, we cut a couple of tracks there. We didn't cut fame. But one night, he, he left the studio early. He says, I'm going to go back to my suite. He was in the Hotel Pierre. And he said, Lennon is coming by tonight. He goes, uh, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit frightened of him, a bit scared of him. He goes, uh, would you mind coming after work, after you finish all your tidying ups and all that, would you mind coming over and kind of buffer the meeting? That's exactly the word he used, to buffer the meeting. I said, I would love to meet John Lennon. That's <laughs> I will be there. <laughs> so I finished at about midnight. Limo takes me over to the Hotel Pierre. I go up to David's suite, and I knock on the door a lot, and nobody answers, but I hear a lot of scuffling behind the door. And finally, I don't know who answered, but um, I think it was Neil Aspinall, one of the minders of the Beatles. It was Neil Aspinall. And I said, it's Tony, Tony Visconti. David asked me to come by tonight. He goes, yeah, uh, okay, we were just a bit worried you might be the police. And I go, oh, well, no, it's me. So he invited me in. And I, I walk into the main room, and I, I saw a sight I'll, I'll never forget. On the floor was David and uh, a beautiful Hispanic woman, really, really beautiful. And between them, there was like a mountain of cocaine. It was Mount Everest, but about six inches high, you know, <laughs> and uh, with, with ski slopes. <laughs> it was like the real deal. And on the couch is my idol, John Lennon, you know. I couldn't believe it. And I go, hello, John. And he goes, hello. And, and next to him was this Asian girl who I found out was May Pang. Um, and she's with sitting with him. And then there's Neil Aspinall uh, sitting next to John. And I, I snuggle into between Neil and John. And I'm watching David and the girl chopping out lines. And John and, and, I, and I said to John, I said, do you mind if I ask you some Beatles questions? You know, like... Uh, he goes, no, go right ahead, you know, ask me anything you like. And I go, okay, that first chord on a hard day's night, what, did, what, how do you play that chord? He goes, well, I know what I played, uh, you know, uh, George played the other guitar, I played this chord, and he picks up a guitar, and he goes, and I think George played this chord, and what you hear is these two chords together. And he says, it's a good clash, it works, it really works. I go, oh yeah, it works very much. <laughs> And then I got into like lyrics and I, I had him for a good hour. And then he's like looking over at David, you know, now David's being absolutely rude. He's not even, he's so frightened of John. He's not even looking up at John. He's just in with this girl. They're chopping lines away. John had a few. And um, then David picks up a pad, a sketch pad, and he's got some charcoal pencils or something like that. And he starts, you know, he's a great, David was a great artist. And so was John. So David starts sketching a Lennon of a portrait of John, like a, a caricature. And uh, John says, hey, give us a piece of paper and give me a pencil. And John puts it on like a tea tray or something like that. And he starts doing David. 
And from this point onwards, it broke the ice. That I, I couldn't buffer anything. Uh, the, the drawing of each other was very funny. They, sh- they picked it up and they showed each other the, the drawings and have a good laugh and they'd start a few. And then eventually David and John started talking to each other. And then, like, I realized that the hour was getting really, really late. It was getting to about uh, 6 p.m., 7 p.m. And um, I said, you know, I got to go. It's, like, really late. I had a hard, long day. And, and John said, yeah, he says, we can't go until, until the sun rises. And I go, why is that? He goes, well, he says, you know, I was busted, and I, I, I don't want to. I want to stay here. I feel safe here, and I feel it would be easier if I leave in the daylight. They'll think I'm just coming out of a hotel instead of staying up all night. If I leave now, it'll, I'll look suspicious and all that. So it was horrible to hear him say that, you know, from, uh, you know, his prior bust. It, he was he was a victim. He 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 could have been victimized. So that that was really sad that he had to leave under those situations. But at least I had him for I don't know six seven hours. He was all mine. <laughs> so how did he end up uh, co-writing Fame? Well, that's it. I went back. The idea was I would go back with the master tapes to London to start mixing it. That's where my home base was then. And David would later join me there. So he phones me up about, uh, he doesn't phone me. No, he did. He did. Because there was another incident like this where his assistant phoned me. He phones me up after three days and he said, Tony, I did something like amazing, but I'm afraid it excluded you. He goes, John and I were just, you know, he came back the next night and we started jamming. We had the guitars and all that. And then the next night he goes, we hired a studio and we wrote this song called Fame. And uh, he says, I put it down. It didn't, you know, we, we hired a drummer in New York. It wasn't even the Philly group of musicians anymore. I think they got Carlos because Carlos lived in Manhattan or he lived in the Bronx. So they got Carlos in there. And, um, he said, it sounds really good, but but uh, I wrote it with John, and I, I have to put it on the album. I have to take something off Young Americans, put it on the album. I said, I said, David, I, I would have bought my own ticket on the Concord. <laughs> if you had told, I would have been there in five hours, you know. <laughs> he says, well, it's done, and uh, we did it. And they, he said, then while we were there, I, I felt we had to record um, another, uh, we had to record one of John's songs. So we did Across the Universe. And I later met up with John Lennon at some event or something, and I, and I, we were talking about that. And he goes, he goes, yeah, he goes, it was good. It was fun recording Fame. He goes, but Across the Universe was never, never one of my favorite songs. <laughs> he says it was a drag doing that one, you know, singing that one. He goes, but it turned out okay. You know, very gregarious, very nice. Okay, those two are on the album. Did you have to take stuff off the album? Sure. Oh, my God. He took, they took off two songs. Somebody Up There Likes Me was taken off the album. And Let It Be Me, which was a funky seven-minute ballad, which later, when they reissued box sets, you now can hear those songs. Like, Let It Be Me is like a classic, like, sounds like a Ray Charles song. And it's very slow and dirgy. And I wrote my best Quincy Jones arrangement for it as well. But you can now hear all those tracks. But oh, Okay, but I have to, I hate to correct you, you were there, but Somebody Up There Likes Me is the opening track on the album, of the second okay. side. Okay, you're absolutely right. So it's another track. The only reason I mention that is that's my favorite song on the album. Staying on the album, you ultimately hear and mix fame. It becomes a gigantic hit. Did you expect that to be a hit? I, I, it, 
like Space Oddity, I knew it was a hit. And I, but on the, but I, you know, I could have done Space Oddity, like I said, you know, but I think Gus did a great job. I could have recorded fame. It's like really simple. And, uh, I don't know. Well, the only thing about that album is fame is not one of my favorites. Young Americans, okay, but my two favorites are somebody up there likes me in fascination. Those yeah, two great. never burn out on. Yeah. So, and how did this is before Luther Vandross is Luther Vandross? I know. How does he end up? He's just in Philadelphia and he shows up. How does he get involved? Uh, Carlos and Robin went to high school with Luther. That's oh. how he showed up. And they said, <laughs> They said, you're going to like Luther because they were looking for backup vocalists. Ro Robin was already in. She was going to sing uh, backing vocals. Ava Cherry, who was uh, David's mistress at the time, was going to sing backing vocals. But we, need, we needed more people. And uh, so Luther comes in one day, like, like wide-eyed, really innocent. You know, this tall, lovely man walks in, like looking around. I know he had some experience in the studio, but this is big time, big star and all that. And uh, he takes over as choir master almost immediately when he, he hears how sluggish we were writing backing vocals. He goes, how about trying to this? Uh, how about trying this? Because young Americans didn't have a ho the hook. He wrote the hook. So David wrote that whole song, but there was no chorus. There was just a musical interlude. And Luther could sing. He was singing over. He goes, young Americans, young Americans. She got the young American. That was Luther's input. And wow. David, David was gobsmacked. <laughs> that that would not have been a single if Luther did not come up with that. So fascination was uh, Luther's song called Funky Music. So Luther said, I've got it. David said, let me hear your music. So Luther played him funky music. And he goes, how about, I, he says, I love the whole song and I love most of the lyrics, but would you allow me to rewrite a few things about it? Luther couldn't believe his luck. <laughs> And he said, of course you can, David. So he changed funky music to fascination. Same melody. And uh, it was so great to see all these young people for first-time experiences. And, you know, we, we were all kind of young ourselves, you know. And David making a soul album took a lot of balls, really. It did, and especially in Philadelphia. He was on their turf. But then he's the so-called Thin White Duke, and you decamp to Berlin you're really the first act that does that. And you make Low, which is with Eno, is considered to be an electronic album. How does that left turn happen and how does it end up in Berlin? So uh, David went to the Honky Chateau to do an album. And he said, I've been, Brian and I have been working for a couple of weeks writing some music for this album. And he told me the concept. He said, the A side is going to be short songs, kind of brief songs. You know, like it's not going to be my usual set of lyrics. He goes, and the B side is going to be what Brian does best, his ambient music. Uh, and he said, would you, he says, it's going to be very experimental and we might never release this album. He goes, but uh, he says, so I can't promise you that it's even going to be released, but are you willing to spend four weeks in France in the Chateau d'Auroville? with Brian and myself. He goes, I said, are you kidding? Four weeks with you and Brian, that's a holiday. That's a vacation. <laughs> I said, I'll happily do that. So we, we sequestered ourselves. It was very far from Paris. We, we really couldn't go out at night and get into trouble. You know, we couldn't go to bars and clubs. And uh, 
we just had, you know, food brought in. It was at first the food was very bad. We were getting sick, sick. You know, we cheese would be left out out overnight, and I would eat it, and I'd get uh, food poisoning for three days. Things like that were happening. Uh, the the sometimes the power would go off at unexpected times, and the studio wasn't really. It didn't have a lot of microphones and outboard gear. It hardly had any outboard gear. But it was perfect for us. It was like l- making music in a monastery. And it, it was a, a great experience to wake up every day, have a bit of breakfast, and go and work all day long on getting the most far-out songs, we, uh, sounds we could think of. And Brian was really like working that little beast, that, that, that uh, synthesizer in a briefcase. It's called the EMS Synthy. And uh, I, I, David bought one. I got one in the end. It was very complicated to work because it had no keyboard. You really just, you really just sat there and twiddled knobs and made it go wow, 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 like things like that and buzz and all that. So uh, with that, we went to we did this experimental album. It was uh, completely panned by the critics at first, but fans went. Even fans were worried about what's this B side business. But in the end, it took. It was a long sell, a long hard sell. RCA rejected it at first. They said this is not a David Bowie album. There are not enough David Bowie songs on it. And uh, you know they wanted. They were always. He says, yeah, they want another Ziggy Stardust. They've been wanting me to make an, a Ziggy Stardust album for years. So that's how he got stuck into this thing. But then, you know, just to prove everyone that he was doing what he wanted, that it was a clever thing. We moved to Berlin next and do a similar kind of album, except we had a good lead-off song on that album. We had didn't have really a, we had Sound and Vision on Low. That was a kind of a hit, but it wasn't a worldwide hit. But Heroes, my God, we we hit all the good points on that. Okay, before we get to Heroes, Breaking Glass. I always thought that was a commentary on Nick Lowe's. I love the sound of Breaking Glass. Any insight there? Um, I think it was a reaction to that song. I think David was gonna, we're having some fun with that song by calling the, be calling, uh, by writing a song called Breaking Glass. And then my favorite song on the album is always crashing in the same car. Any story there? Oh, I love that. I love that song. And it really did happen. He, uh, was in a hotel. He lived in a hotel in Berlin for a while. I think it was Berlin. And there was in the, he kept his car in a sub basement, you know, with a, in a car park, and he he couldn't see very well in dim light. And every time he decided to take the car out, he'd always uh, always have a bumper accident. With he'd hit another car in the in the uh, in the garage, and he said he was sick and tired of it. He just stopped. He just started parking the car in the street because he was always <laughs> crashing. He was always crashing when he got his car out of that garage. But it became a metaphor for always doing the same thing and expecting different results, I guess. Okay, you're in Berlin. Berlin, of course, is a divided city then. The wall doesn't fall for another, you know, 12 years. What was Berlin like? It was scary. Honestly, uh, when we were there, the streets were full of these huge black armored uh, tanks. And I, I think they belong to the the American, uh, yeah, they belong to the Americans. 
They were not your World War II tanks. These were big, but twice as big, all black, and with that paint that you can't detect. It didn't shine. You know, it was the first time. It was matte, matte paint. And the and the turrets, the gun star turrets were sticking right in the air. And you feel you felt like they could shoot a, a huge missile out of it at any second if they wanted to. And that was hard. It was hard to see that every day. That was, it was a hard thing to live with. David had been there for six months, but when I saw it, it freaked me out when I first moved there to to make the album. The second thing was, which was weird, was Checkpoint Charlie, because we were in the uh, the um, British. Wait a minute, we were in the American zone. Yeah, and the checkpoint went into the into East Berlin where I think the British had headquarters there. I'm not sure. Was it just, was it just the, the communist Germans in that side, the Russians? I know we, the Russians were in there. It was Russian-occupied. Well, East Germany was tied up with Russia, however you want to put it. Yeah, so we had a couple of experiences with them as well. Um, so we would go in there, and it was a different world. Everything was, because it was a communist country, all their billboards had slogans on them, but it didn't advertise like a BMW car or a camel cigarette, something like that. It was slogans like like "Eat fish," and they would have a big <laughs> they would have a big picture of a fish, and drink milk, and they have a big glass of milk, and somebody with a, a mustache, you know, a milk mustache on their face. But they couldn't sell products. Like they were driving around these little Russian cars, cars called Vatborgs and and uh, Skodas. The, car, the cars came from Russia, whereas on this, this side, the west side of Berlin, people were driving Mercedes Benzes and, you know, all the uh, German cars. So that was freaky to go into west Ber- East Berlin. And then when you came back, your car was searched by Russian, Russian guards, and they'd put a, a panel, a mirror under your car to make sure you weren't smuggling anyone's, any people who wanted to escape. And they had people who made special shoes and clamps. They could actually hold themselves underneath a car while they drove across the bridge into West Berlin, and then they'd release themselves. So people were actually smuggling bodies that way into West Berlin. And then, then when they went through your stuff at customs, you, uh, you know, they'd just throw everything out on the counter and everything you, you had, anything in your knapsack or anything like that. And then they... When we went through the first time, Iggy Pop had platinum hip blonde hair, and David's passport had him with the curly perm he had. His hair had a perm, and he looked very weird. Now, both of them look different, completely different. But they looked at the passports, and they looked at Ig- Iggy's passport had the actual blonde hair, and now Iggy had dark hair. David had the perm, but now he had darker hair. So they would hold the passports up in the air, and they'd yell, Hey, Fritz, come here! So they'd get another god to come over, and suddenly all the gods would gather around the passports and die laughing. They'd be laughing in our faces, you know. Then they give the they have a good laugh, and then they gave the passports back, and we could get back into West Berlin. But uh, things like that, the weirdest things happened every day. Another one was we were making heroes in the studio, which faced the Berlin Wall. So we're looking at East Berlin from our studio in West Berlin, and there was a big kind of uh like like a castle you know there was a kind of a big turret i don't know maybe you'd call it a turret and in there every day there was a russian god watching us with big binoculars he was watching us make records 
and it was they would ch- have you know and we could see from our side it, they were so close we could see the red star on his fuzzy gray helmet that he had and he's wearing that big russian overcoat for like siberian winters and he's watching us so we asked our engineer who is a lovely man we said doesn't this freak you out with russian guards like looking at every day it's freaking us out he goes no nah, it doesn't doesn't freak me out and he he took the overhead light that was hanging from a wire and he aimed it right at the russian guard and he started sticking his tongue out and sticking up the middle finger towards <laughs> the russian guard so David and I dove underneath the recording console. We said, don't fucking do that. <laughs> you know, don't do it. And uh, he said, ah, oh, it's okay. They can't shoot us. If, if, you know, if they did, it would be World War III. You couldn't exchange fire. If anything like that happened at Checkpoint Charlie, we, we, would, we would have been at war again in the 70s. So they, were, they could restrain themselves. And the other funny thing was, David one night went by the wall on the west side, West Berlin side. He was dating a girl and he just decided, he dropped her off and he took his car right by the, the, the wall and the other side of where all the Russians are. And he lights up a cigarette and somebody taps on his window. It was a red guard from, the, from East Berlin. The, he, David found out there were other tunnels that nobody knew about. The, the Red God came into the West just for a little stroll. This was about three in the morning. And he said, do you have a light? He asked David <laughs> for a light. <laughs> Freaked David out. He, he, he soon got out of there. He never went back to that, that spot again. And so next comes Heroes. Yeah. Which ultimately is a success then, but becomes legendary over the decades. Right. Well, that was taking berlin for a place to live that was really good he he and iggy had been living there for at least almost a good part of a year and they were used to this going back and forth they, they knew all the local drink uh, they knew all the local drinking spots and uh we went out there they would often dress with as working men so they all the two of them had scarves and they would wear these andy cap you know these these hats that workers in the fruit markets where to keep that top of their head warm. So they thought they could pass as Berliners and that they actually did, you know, until they spoke English. But we, we often ordered in German. It was easy to order, you know, zwei beer, you know, and then when you wanted to, to pay, you would say, wie viel, how much things like that. We learned that we learned a few good words. So maybe the Germans knew we weren't German, but you know, they were trying definitely to blend in. So you continue to work with Bowie until all of a sudden there's a schism in his sound and he works with Nile Rodgers on Let's Dance. How did that happen? How did you end up not being involved? Well, um, before that happened, we did an incredible album called Scary Monsters, right? which, which was number one in most parts of the world. So uh, that was, uh, I thought, well, we're going to make a great record after this. The next one's going to be killer. The next record was Let's Dance. And his instead of him phoning me, um, Coco phoned me, his assistant, and she said, David's very sorry, but he just met Niall, and uh, they got on really, really well, and they're, they're going to make an album together. So he's very, very, he said, you know, you'll make the next one. He says, but he, he wants... He wants to work with Niall. It's very important to him. They got on really, really well. So I said, okay. And uh, I was really crestfallen. (laughs) I really was. 
but it turned out great. You know, that's that Let's Dance is a big hit. And he said, that's why I did it. I wanted that sound, and I knew I was going to get a hit record with him. I needed a, another international hit, which Niall gave him. And I, I take my hat off to him. You know, although I do like modern love, if I never hear Let's Dance again, that's okay with me. Seemed a little <laughs> obvious, but brought him back. Then he works with you, Padgham, before he goes back to you. What's yeah. his explanation there? He, we had a thing, like, we came together and we worked apart many times. And I, by then, I couldn't blame him. He's, he's looking for a new sound. He thought maybe when he works with me, it's going to be predictable. It's going to be another The Man Who Sold the World or, or a Heroes and all that. So he loved to like pay a producer to get a new fresh set of sounds. I think you pageant work with the police or something. I don't know. Some right. other, other great band, you know, he wanted a bit of the modern sound, but he'd always come back to me. And uh, for another record, like, you know, Diamond Dogs was a comeback record. Uh, Heathen was a comeback record. Uh, for, after he worked, for, like after we didn't speak to each other for 10 years, he comes back one day and, he says, uh, how'd you like to get together and make another record together? You know, so I ended up making his last four albums with no, no right. other producer in between. But before we get there, he is legendary for changing direction. Was that very conscious? You were there. Was he saying, I did this, I need to do something different, or it's just in retrospect it was different? Well, you know, he didn't get that name Chameleon for nothing. It, it also referred to his change of musical tastes and styles. He constantly listened to new music. He would bring a stack of records with him whenever we would meet up and we would go through the, the latest releases and he'd want to make sure that I was up to date and I, I would be with him. And um, he could take someone's sound like, oh, what was that other one? Oh, gosh. Nine Inch Nails, he blatantly said, you know, I'll make a record with you and I, I'm going to take your sound and I'll be your lead singer. So he would be Niall Rogers' lead singer. That's He kind of spent that period being other groups' lead singer and he'd cop their sound, he'd steal their sound. But with their blessings, because, you know, that by then to work with David Bowie was like one of, one of the greatest achievements in a, a producer's life or a, another rock star's life. And, you, you know, you talk about the last four records Okay, we have the next day in 2013, then, of course, the final album, Black Star. Yeah. At this point in time, with so much changing, is he just want to lay down what he wants to lay down, or is he still conscious of what's going on in charts, et cetera? Oh, he was forever interested in the charts. And uh, the next day was, a, a on purpose, it was a, a retro look back at his other styles. So the next day is done in a lot of different David Bowie styles. But for Black Star, he wanted to do his dream record that he never really achieved. He made a few attempts in the past, but he wanted to make a jazz-based album. It had to, he wanted to make it with jazz musicians. So uh, he met this guy called Donnie McCaslin, who's an incredible sax player, and Donnie had a four-piece band. And uh, we, he said... Come, uh, I want you to see this band because I I'm thinking of using them. So we went down to uh, the Blue Note in New York together, and I thought Donnie was fantastic. He was just great. I loved him, loved all his players in the band. And uh, when we got closer to, to Black Star, uh, 
we had a couple of experiences with them. We recorded with, uh, forget her name again. Anyway, we, we had a session. We, we worked with Donnie prior to, to Black Star, and we, we knew he was going to work. Also, Mark Juliana, the drummer in his band, was absolutely unbelievable. No one liked him. We, this guy was a loop master. You thought it was a drum loop, but it's a, a real musician playing the same pattern over and over again for, se- for seven minutes. Uh, he was just a genius. So we had a, pre- a pre-production was just one little rehearsal, and then uh, David seeing me the day before and telling me that uh, he uh, was ta- he was getting chemo treatment. So I, he he said I I can't start this album with letting you know that without letting you know that. And then the next day we started the album with the band, and uh, he did the same thing. He gathered them all together in the studio, and then he said the he told them the same thing he told me the day before. So he wasn't deadbeat about it. He was quite upbeat about it. He says, but we're going to make the best album ever. We're going to just, you know, I want you guys to do your thing. Uh, don't hold back. Uh, and he gave them, he gave Danny, uh, uh, he gave Donnie a handful of demos, which is the first time he never gave me a demo. I always had the demos before we started, but his idea was to not have my influence at all on the, the creative part at that level. He wanted this to be purely an album between him and Donnie and the band, Donnie's band. So that's why it sounds so different and really, really interesting. And he's fulfilling his dream that he was, he, he always recorded live in the room with them. And you, I have the master tapes and at the end you could hear him like laughing and cracking up, talking to the band. These were his kind of people he, he, that he wanted to work with at last his other musicians that he made albums with prior to this, they some of them could play jazz, but it would be rock musicians playing jazz. But he felt, let's get the real thing. Let's get real jazz musicians in instead. It would have been a different album, but the songs that he wrote for Black Star, which just broke my heart, some of them, they were so beautiful. And uh, Telltale, I mean, he's telling you, he's wearing his heart on his sleeve on that album. You know, he tells everybody involved that he has uh, is being treated was he optimistic at that point and then had to face the fact it was terminal or was he hiding it from you? Um, he, he was optimistic because he was going for the treatments. He wouldn't have gone if, if, if he wasn't optimistic and it, it happened, you know, his death was almost a year later from, from that. And, um, you know, uh, he, he was good. Sometimes he had to leave early cause he was a little tired. And uh, so our days would end around five o'clock, but there were there were always things to do in his absence. So Donnie would uh, play four saxophones and build up a sax section, things like that. And we'd play it to David the next day, and he'd like what we had done. But he never he never wore a, a gloomy face. He was absolutely smiling from ear to ear whenever he came to the sessions. He was in a great mood. And when the record was done, the you know interesting thing is it was released serendipitously just about when he died were you in contact with him in the ensuing months subsequent to the completion of the album and how did you find out that he passed well when the album ended he was in great health he was really fit he was doing exercises um i didn't i stopped asking whether he was doing chemo or not and uh because it was just such a regular thing. I mean, you know, that was interesting at the beginning of the album. At the end of the album, we were just a bunch of musicians making records. Uh, I saw him for lunches again, things like that. And then uh, closer we got to Christmas, 
he had his family over and uh, he was so pleased to, uh, he phoned me up and he said that he was, um, he said he was going to become a grandfather. He was very proud of that. And I, I kept that secret. He said, this is secret. Don't tell anyone. I kept that secret. And uh, that he said uh, he was going to resume some therapy afterwards. He says, everything's going great. I'll be fine. Everything's going great. But, you know, it wasn't going great. And uh, he phoned up a lot of people in that month. So he was kind. it was kind of a goodbye. I heard from a lot of my friends. He was making phone calls to everyone he worked work with old friends. And he never actually said anything. He was just like getting up to date, probably telling them the same thing. He was going to become a grandfather. Don't tell anybody, things like that. So I went on tour with my band, Holy Holy. We were, we were doing a Bowie tribute uh, tour and I was in Toronto and something, my alarm went off at eight in the morning and I, I, my, my watch, I didn't see my clock, my iPhone. And I looked at it and I saw David Bowie passed at eight o'clock in the morning. I saw he passed and this is December 10th. And, uh, later there's a knock on my door in the group. They start come in my room. They say, Tony, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you something terrible has happened. I go, I know. And, uh, we had another show to play in Toronto that night. And, uh, I said, we had to have a group meeting. What are we going to do about this? And I said, I don't know. I think David, you know, without sounding coding, I think the show must go on. We have only, this is our last date. Uh, these fans are going to want to mourn his death. They're going to, and we're going to celebrate his life. Let's go and do the show. And even the promoters begged us, just, I hope you're not going to cancel the show. I said, no, we'll do it. We'll do it. So we played seven of us. We played to, you know, a rows and rows of people crying their eyes out. And then it was infectious, you know, I'm playing, I'm crying my eyes out, playing bass, and lead singers choking on the words. And finally, it settled down by the second half of the show. We all calmed down with saying nice things about David. What else can you do, you know? And uh, that was the end of the tour. And I, I went back and uh, none of us, nobody, there was no funeral that I knew of, you know, it was just a pam family thing. I, I have no idea how it went after he died, but... Uh, he, he said his goodbye to me. Subsequent to his passing, there been your, let's just use the term Bowie tribute tour, but there's been another Bowie tribute tour with Adrian Ballou. Are you fine with that or are you unhappy with that? Here's the difference. The, there's, there's a tour now with all of them. The, the Bowie people who came at the afterwards, they, uh, Adrian actually played on an album. He played on Larger. But a lot of the people were just his live people his live show people and some of them played on on their albums and all that that's just an alum that's called an alumni tour the reason i did that tribute band woody woodmansey and i played on the man who sold the world it started as a man who sold the world tour we are the original musicians and we felt uh that we had the right to do this to to form this band we we always the tribute was to david and we always had a a pause in the middle of the show saying a nice little anecdote about David. And we felt that it was all right to do this without feeling bad about it, that we're just capitalizing on his death. Uh, he actually didn't, he died after we started this tour. Uh, we started it as a, as a Bowie tribute show. And he asked me, he said, why are you doing this? And I said, because when we finished the man who sold the world, you split up the group. 
we went four different ways. Mick, Mick and Woody went back to Hull and uh, you, you know, did your thing. You were doing your thing. He goes, oh, that's right. I said, <laughs> I, I, he forgot. I said, that's why we're doing this. We feel we could do this. And uh, we got a guy who sings very well. Would you like to see a video of one song? So I played the width of a circle to him and he sat just behind where I'm sitting now. And he said, that's really good at the end. He goes, that's really great. You guys did a great job. He goes, he says, if we stuck together, we would have, we, we would have sounded that good. You know, we, you're better rehearsed than we were at the time. I said, would you put that in writing? He says, no, absolutely not. <laughs> it would have been nice if he uh, endorsed the tour, but he died after this. You have these incredible highlights with David Bowie and T-Rex, but you also did records with Gentle Giant. The Moody Blues, Badfinger when it was still called the Ivies. There's a lot of stuff there. But before we go, one thing you mentioned, you said you were writing songs with your wife. So when did you get married and did that wife go to England with you? That was uh, 1967. That was Her name was Sigrid. And she was an, a German-American. That was the wife. Then I was married to Mary Hopkin. Well, before uh, you get to Mary Hopkin, yeah. your first wife, did she go to London with you? Yes, she did. And she left after about seven months uh, without me knowing it. I got home from work and the, the apartment, all her clothes were gone. Whoa, whoa, she, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> did you have any idea and what did that feel like? Well, uh, we were a singing duo and in New York, but that never continued when she, we moved to London. All of a sudden, my career was taking off, and Sigrid was a stay-at-home wife, and I didn't know how to deal with that. I, I, I invited her to come to the recording sessions and sit in, but there was nothing for her to do, so she left me. She went back to, her, to live with her mother for a while, and by the way, like today, she's a tycoon. She builds, she builds office buildings in Manhattan, she, wow. She, <laughs> did she get remarried? Yeah, a couple of times. But, uh, you know, I met, I met up with her a few years ago, and she, she's dressed to the nines. You know, she's dressed so beautifully. Just for a chat. She, it was her idea. So she looks at me, and I'm, I'm already a successful record producer. She's, so she looks at me and says, the first thing out of her mouth, so do you need any money? <laughs> first thing. Uh, that was the one-upmanship she just had to do. She just had to do that. Okay. You're making record with the IVs, become bad finger, magic Christian, et cetera. How do you meet Mary Hopkin? That was interesting because I did work with the IVs and I was in and out of the Apple offices all the time. You know, you could, anyone could walk in off the street. You've heard about this, whether hell's angels could walk in anything, you know? And, uh, so I met a lot of people around the offices and they knew me. They knew I was working with uh, T-Rex, things like that. And uh, I just got a call out of the blue from uh, Mary's uh, manager who said, um, we like, uh, Mary wants to make a folk album. She doesn't want to be a pop star anymore. She doesn't, she had the big hit with Paul McCartney and all that. And then she feels like, uh, people used her voice in the wrong way. She wants to make a folk album and she loves the music that you made with Ralph McTell and the Straubs, two, two folk artists that I've worked with. She says, I want that sound. So I said, well, 
I, I can do that for her. I can get Ralph McTell playing one guitar and Dave Cousins playing the other. <laughs> and, and Danny Thompson in the middle on the du- a double bass who played with Pentangle. And uh, so I met Mary and told her all this. And she looked at me like, like I was like Jesus or something like that. This is exactly what she wanted to do. And she was thrilled that somebody was listening to her. Uh, you know, because Paul McCartney just thought she was going to be a, a pop star. You know, like he thought that was everyone's goal. But her roots were always folk music. She played in folk clubs in Wales and she was bilingual. She used to sing to in Welsh to all these uh, men's clubs, you know, where they'd be drinking, knocking back pints of ale and singing in Welsh and all that. She was she was great, you know, but she wasn't a pop singer. So that's how it happened. I made her this album, uh, Earth Song, Ocean Song. I spent at least two or three months looking for music. She wasn't writing then. I found some good good songs for her in New York, Went brought her back to London. And it, she was so thrilled. I mean, that was... For her, it was the best thing she ever did. So how did it turn into a romance? That happened during the making of the album. Uh, I used to get a lift home with her one night, and uh, and she had a limo in those days, a big Bentley limo. And, uh, you know, would you come in for, like, would you like to come in for a cup of tea? <laughs> That's how it happened. <laughs> okay, you get married. She does not have another hit. Does she care or is she done? No, she she did what she wanted to do. She didn't have another hit because that would mean the public wanted her to be that Mary Hopkin, the one who sang Those Were the Days. And uh, she was 18 when she did that now. You know, she's a 22-year-old woman married to me. She has kids. And she said, uh, you know, I said, are, are you going to go back on the road or what are you going to do? Do you? You know, we, we did a few gigs together with, with Dave Cousins and, and Danny Thompson <laughs> and the, the Royal Albert Hall. And the, the audience, you could see them float up in the air. They, they, she sang like an angel. You know, she had, there's no voice like hers. And she said, no. She says, what's the use of having children if you're just going to go out and work and do gigs? She says, I'm finished. I'm done. I don't want to do it anymore. So she used our, our kids, with, but, you know, quite rightly. I think she did the, made the right decision because she turned out to be the best mother to my two oldest children, you know, who I'm still in touch with constantly. And Mary and I are friends now, by the way. <laughs> well, how did it end with you and Mary? Uh, I cheated on her. I, I, she would, the stay-at-home mom was not what I married. You know, I was this wild guy. I was a wild, crazy young man. And uh, I wasn't a very good husband. That's it. I have nothing to say in my defense. I think that kind of says it all. Then you get involved with May Pang, who came up earlier in the podcast. How did that happen? Well, that was under friendlier circumstances. I, I met her uh, when she left John, after she left. I met her at some kind of do. And we went out on a date. I was single. I didn't, I didn't cheat on any wife to go out with May Pang. I, I was single. And um, we had a, a little romance in New York. And then when I went back to um, uh, England, she phoned me up one day after that little romance and said, um, how do you feel about babies? And I said, I like babies. I've got two kids already. I love babies. She goes, um, 
how would you like to be a father again? I go, what are you trying to tell me? <laughs> she says, you're going to be a father. If you don't want to be a father, let me know. I'll get rid of it. But what do you want to do? And I thought for a minute, and I th this is now, I didn't live with kids for a, at least a decade by this point. And I, and I made up my mind on the spot. I said, have the baby. And she goes, and? I said, and everything that goes with it. What do you mean by that? I said, will you marry me? <laughs> I was in a session. I was in a recording session. And then I come out, I come out of the wherever I was taking the phone call. And I told everyone I was working with, I'm going to be a father. <laughs> it sounds flippant, but it was really romantic in a way. I mean, the way she asked me, the way she kept rephrasing it and rephrasing it was very interesting. But it was, it was a great, you know, I think all my marriages were great up to a point. I'm, I'm not a good husband. That's the conclusion I came to. So how did it end with May Pang? Um, well... How do I put this? We we started arguing a lot, and she was uh, reliving her life again, uh, the John Lennon years, a lot. She she wrote that one book, uh, Loving John, or something like that, and started going out on a, a book. Uh, when you promote a book, you know, going to different towns and all that. And I felt like at one point I said, we had John Lennon's photos all over the wall. Uh, she said, one by one, I'd come home from work and there'd be another photo of John Lennon on the wall or a photo of her and John Lennon on the wall. And I, and I said, May, you know, this is a little bit ridiculous. I feel like there's three of us in bed. And she goes, she said, uh, well, you should have known this when you took it on, when you married me. You should have known this would happen. I go, no, I, I thought you married me, you know, and, uh, and then we split. You know, I lived, we lived apart for a while and we never got back together again finally got divorced so how many kids do you have and what are they up to oh i've got great kids my two oldest kids are from mary hopkin my son morgan is uh, morgan visconti he's a film composer and he owns this company i'm sitting in right now this is a whole bunch of recording studios where the people write jingles and film scores and uh, morgan uh doesn't come in anymore he's he's kind of semi-retired at 51 years old <laughs> But he likes to keep his hand in and, and write film scores. Uh, my oldest daughter, Jessica, is living near Mar Mary in England. And she and Mary just made a duets album. They, they sound like sisters. They have the identical voice. My daughter has a voice from heaven, just like Mary has. And uh, she does gigs. She's got, she and her man, who plays bass, they go out and do regular gigs all over England. And uh, she's, they, they write songs. They release records. So that side, that side of the family is very uh, musical. Now, if I'll, I'll, I'll move on to May. My two children with May are gifted as graphic artists. Uh, my daughter, Lara, is the youngest child. She's about 32 or 33 now. And yeah, I should know her age, really. But uh, she does graphic work for many, many different companies from uh, designing their websites to actually, if they have a new uh, brand of talcum powder, she'll design the box and all the artwork that goes in. You know, this is a big job, you know, to to make an iconic thing that'll catch the eye in a shop that'll sell. So she loves graphic art. And then my son, Sebastian, does his, uh, 
he's got like a the only one who does a, a normal nine to five job, but but he does also uh, he's into manga, manga, the Japanese right. art form. He's a, he and he does little comic books like that for his friends and sells them and stuff like that. But they're all autistic kids, uh, and I love them all. I'm in touch with all of them. Okay, you started in Brooklyn. You ended up in London. Why are you in Manhattan now? Um, good question. In 89, there was a huge recession worldwide, but it was very, very bad in the UK. And uh, the studios were dropping like flies. And I had a really big studio. I had a responsible business that I was running. And um, I was in a neighborhood that had about maybe eight or nine recording studios. And I saw them one by one. They were just closing shop forever. They just couldn't get any any uh, clients. And then there was a guy called Dr. Death who came around to my studio, tried to get me to close my studio because he, he did close the others. And he says, well, how about sell me some of your gear instead? You know, maybe, do you need all your gear? I, I can, I'll take your microphones from you and things like that. And I told him to get lost. But the writing was on the wall. I knew that uh, I, I had about bookings for the next two months besides myself. I would use it for my own productions. But I did, didn't work all the world. I didn't produce all the time. So I had other people come in and use a studio. Quite a few hit records were made there, Thin Lizzy and people like that. And um, I found a buyer who wanted to buy the whole studio, Lock, Stock, and Barrel. He was a jingle guy, jingle house guy. And, he, and they called it Joe and Co. I just learned yesterday that Joe passed away. But they bought the studio for me. And they turned it into the, one of the biggest jingle houses in London. In fact, it was the big, big, biggest jingle house in London. And uh, even my son Morgan started working with them first, and he got into the the rhythm of writing jingles and what it takes to do that. But the studio still lives today. The studio that was co came perilously close to uh, uh, closing. It's now owned by um, the Alvin Lee family. Alvin Lee blues guitarist. Wow. His daughter, his daughter, and his and his wife own the studio now, and they run it like a really good business. And I'm entitled to use it anytime I want. Anytime I go to London, I can go in that place. And it's it's walking through my history. Believe me, when I walk down those steps, I'm, I'm like hearing Hazy Fantasy, Thin Lizzy, all the things I recorded, all the great records I made. And the name of the studio when you owned it? It was called Good Earth. And, you know, Good Earth is a Pearless Buck, uh, Pearless Buck book about China. And ironically, I lived... My studio was a block away from Chinatown in London, so we got a lot of calls at one in the morning for people wanting a late Chinese meal. They thought it was <laughs> another Chinese restaurant. You know, there were there's quite a few Good Earths in the world. Restaurants who call themselves Good Earth, the Good Earth. So, how do you end up back in the U.S.? Well, that was because of the recession. I sold my studio and got out, and I went back. I, I was with May then. She, she was, she's always was good with money. And I, she realized, she says, that's the best thing you could do because you'll be broke in six months. You, you're not going to get any more clients. That studio is going to shut down. But for a jingle house it was perfect. He didn't rely on clients like musicians, you know, he just wanted people who wanted adverts made. And, uh, we got on a plane. I said goodbye to my house, my studio and, uh, moved to, uh, New York in, at first in her place. She had a, a, 
a controlled rent place in Manhattan on 89th Street between 3rd and 2nd Avenue, Manhattan. So we lived there for a while until our children started to come from that marriage, and then we had to move to other places. But it was great. It was great to be back. I had to literally start all over again because most people didn't know who I was. That with whatever great reputation I had made in, in London and the rest of the world, Americans just, you know, oh, oh, you did bang a gong, that one, you know, that was, that was it, you know. And uh, so that's how I ended up back there. And, you know, my, my career did pick up afterwards. I'm still making records all the time, working with some great people, discovering new artists. Did, did you know about my box set? Yes, I did. That's what inspired me to do this uh, podcast. But you could do a little commercial. Oh, well, uh, I've got a, a box set of uh, uh, six vinyls or four CDs, whichever ones you want to buy. But it, I was approached by Demon Records about a year ago saying they would like to do this. And I had this idea about five or ten years ago, but the time is right now. It actually never came off before. But by now, I'm, I'm 79 years old. Uh, I've have I do have a pretty dense history behind me. I've worked with, I must have made about five hundred albums. I've must have produced over two thousand songs, individual songs, and now's the time. I'm really proud of this album. Um, it, it's got some iconic records that Americans might not have heard, but they were. I had a big spate of hits in the eighties in Britain with Adamant, uh, Altered Images. Uh, a lot, a lot, a lot of British, uh, and my studio would turned into a, a, a literally a hit factory. I was there every day, new group every day, Dexy's Midnight Runners. Like I did a lot of stuff in the '80s, and that's well represented on this box set. And then someone pointed out to me, "But you left this off. You left that off. You left that off." And one one group I'm very proud of was Osibisa. It's the first uh, Anglo-African group ever. It came from Kenya, and uh, we made uh, the first two albums we made were massive hits for them in the UK and also in America. There's not one Osibisa song on this album. So now I have to go back to Demon now. They don't know this, but I want to do a volume two and make sure, you know, there's plenty of other records to get on there, but I'm, I want to make sure Osibisa gets on the next one because so I'm very, very proud of that work. I, it was groundbreaking work. You never heard of a, an African rock band before until Osibisa. Well, they have the covers by Roger Dean, the same guy who did the Yes covers. Yeah. The album that's, covers. Those, those are great, those covers. They are iconic covers. Okay. So you have this long history, but you have a similar perspective that I have, except even more information from the 50s and early 60s. You're excited about these women you met at Reaperbond, but are you as excited about the music as ever and what do you think about music and its power and influence and where it's going today? Well, back in my day, music was a culture. And record labels, they couldn't wait to be invited to the recording session and sit in and watching a hit being made, watching an album being made. Even, you know, even though money was to be made by these records, even the executives felt like they they would be attending a, a history-making recording session. They used to come to the sessions. And then when the record came time to promote it, they would put a huge budget in the promotion, and that's just the way things were. 
in those days. Uh, and the freakier album you can make, the better. The freakier the album was, the better. You, they wanted new sounds, different things. Bo Bowie could be as radical as he could, and you know, Mark Bowling could do say outrageous things in the press. They loved all that stuff because it was a culture. Um, move speed up to these days. The difference between these days is the bottom line is money right now. It's really money, 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 and they have to make uh, sound-alike records to get that money. So they'll hire producers, very, very clever young people who work from laptops mainly, and uh, everything's in the everything's in the box now. Like you would probably. The only human being on a, today's records might be just the singer. Everything else is programmed, you know, a fake guitar, a fake bass, fake drums, a swirling synthesizer sounds, and a chorus that goes on forever until you're sick of it, you know. Uh, oh, my God, what can I say? So, I mean, I, I kind of, within this climate, I still have people who want to work with me. I wish I could tell you the name of this famous jazz pianist player that I'm making a record with. Uh, she swore me to secrecy, but I just gave away the, the, uh, her sex to you. But uh, I, I'm making a fantastic record with this person. And uh, there's still that market. There's people who love great music, and people who are true artists are still being supported by their fans and by labels, too. Because, you know, a great artist can sell a lot of records. It doesn't have to be a Beyonce kind of record or a Taylor Swift kind of record. It could be a, a record of uh, extreme artistic merit, and it could sell. And I'm that kind of a producer. I'm, I'm, this is my sixth decade, and I learned a lot of shit in my life. <laughs> <laughs> my sixth decade, I've, I could still pull rabbits out of the hat for people. <laughs> this has been utterly fantastic. I could talk to you for another three hours. I know. <laughs> I can see why you're successful. You're a very charming guy, very friendly. It's funny. You just see a name on a record cover. You have no idea who the person is. And you're a great raconteur. Really, you're just fucking great, Tony. I mean, and I'm not blowing smoke up your ass because you never really know. And I said, I'm, you know, like after like five minutes ago, this guy is great. It's oh, like, will you, it stay buddy. this good? And it did. So I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to my audience. Bob, you're a sweetheart. I love you. <laughs> I it's all true. That's one reputation I have. I speak my truth. They, they said, be careful what you tell him. He's going to ask you these questions. I said, well, I've got nothing to hide. <laughs> you know? This is, you know, Mike, the whole thing with this is not gotcha anyway. Not that I would, I would even know what gotcha to ask you. As you say, you have nothing to hide. But, you know, you were there. And you've told some of those stories that people don't know, not, not to mention your history. People need to know. I mean, I can see why you connect with Bowie. People want to work with you. A good guy, good hang, irrelevant of your <laughs> talent. Yeah, that guy, he's fun to have around. Thank and he's you. not like a sycophant either. I always love your podcast. I listen to you. Your podcasts are great. You know, they're so different from others. You know, they, 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 you don't have one... You're the only string running through everything, you know, and you, you, you do great interviews, Bob. I'm a fan. I appreciate it. I'll just leave it at that. So, Tony, I want to thank you again. Till next time, this is Bob Left Sets.
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 